اعوذ باللہ من الشیطان الرجیم بسم اللہ الرحمن الرحیم لیس بے امانیکم ولا امانی اہل کتاب من یعمل سوء این یجزبہی ولا یجد لہو من دون اللہ ولیو ولا نصیرا وی آن سورہ نسا سورہ نمبر فور ورس نمبر ون ٹوینٹی تھری اینڈ So here, before Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala was talking about the unbelievers, then from verse 122 onwards, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala shifted gears and started talking to the believers, about the believers. And this we mentioned when we ended last time, that this is an adat and an oft-recurring feature of Qur'an al-Kareem, that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala talks about those who disbelieves and chastises them, and then talks about the believers. Here Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is saying that... The promise of Jannah is not based on the amani, which means the hopeful wishes or the hopeful yearning of the believers, nor will Jannah be granted on the basis of the amani ahl kitab. It's not going to be granted on their hopeful wishes. So here Allah Subhanahu wa is making it clear that no one, whether the ahl kitab or mu'mineen, should feel that they are granted or guaranteed Jannah. Nobody should take their admission into Jannah for granted. Nobody should view that it is somehow their inherent right. Nor should they wish that just their hope and desire or yearning or wish for it is sufficient to attain it. Neither for the believers nor for the unbelievers, nor for the Ahli Kitab will that be there. Why? Because مَنْ يَعْمَلْ سُوْ That each and every person who does any type of sin, each and every person who does every type of sin, Each and every person who does any sin whatsoever, yudzabihi, will be faced with the recompense for that sin. This ayah is also very important to remember. an That whomsoever does any sin whatsoever, yudzabihi, they will surely and certainly and undoubtedly and irreversibly face the compensation and recompense, jaza, the punishment for that, the consequences of that. Now, then Allah says, وَلَا يَجِدَ لَهُ And such a person will not be able to find مَنْدُونِ اللَّهِ Other than Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala وَلِيَّ A protecting, benevolent friend and benefactor وَلَا نَسِيرَ Or any helper. So the first question that comes in regards to this verse is that uh, is, it, is this indeed the case? That whoever commits any sin will have to face with it in the hadith of Sahih Muslim Sayyidina Abu Hurairah narrates that the, the Muslims, the Mu'mineen Tabakram were terrified when they heard this verse. Because they thought of their past indiscretions, any past mistakes, any past errors they made. And the person who has true taqwa cannot even imagine being able to stand in front of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and account for even a single sin. And if Allah SWT is saying in Quran that every single sin will have to be accounted for, you will have to face the consequences for every sin. So this terrified them. So they went to Sayyidina Rasulullah Wasallam. So he responded, and this is his hadith, he said you should keep on the righteous path, you should keep doing a'mal salih keep doing righteous good deeds. So the first was in Ashar, we did this yesterday, that good deeds, hasanat, will eliminate at least the sayyat, the minor sins. Second Nabi Akrim Sallallahu said in the same hadith that every difficulty, every musibah that afflicts a believer, even if it is so small as them being pricked with a thorn, 
that difficulty will also be an expiation for their sins. That will also be a way that their sins are forgiven. And then the Prophet said that and all of this will serve to eradicate a person's sins. So the notion here that other things that are mentioned is also istighfar and tawbah. In a hadith that is narrated by Abu Sayyid al-Khudri radiallahu anhu, both transmitted by both Imam Bukhari and Muslim, is that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will forgive the sins of a believer on account of every bit of fatigue, every bit of pain, every bit of worry, concern, hardship, grief that afflicts him, even to the extent of a thorn pricking him. So this means that number one is a person's hasanat, good deeds. Second are the small trials and tribulations or even large difficulties in life. And the third thing is a person's istighfar and a person's toba. A person seeking Allah Ta'ala's forgiveness for those sins and a person repenting entirely for those sins. By these four means, a person, I'm not going to say escape this ayah, but their suit that they did, the evil or sin that they did, will no longer be in their record. So in that case, then you could translate this verse as, May su an that whomsoever does any sin whatsoever will face the consequences for it unless they're able to successfully wipe away that sin from their record through either istighfar or tawbah or doing hasanat at saleh or due to Allah Ta'ala's wiping it away by means of the affliction and difficulties Allah Ta'ala sends upon a person. So now here Allah Ta'ala is saying, and this is again Allah Ta'ala is showing us the light after Allah Ta'ala reprimanding us that although we have heard that yes, that person who does any sin will be facing the consequences. Al-Spantil adds here that whomsoever does any action from the righteous deeds, min dhakarin aw untha, from any male or any female. And again, this is the thing that you need to see. Where is it and when is it and why is it that Allah Ta'ala highlights gender parity? And you will find that that is always in areas of spirituality, piety, jannat. And these are the things that are important to a deen and important to a religion. So, whether they are male or whether they are female, and they do those good deeds in such a state that they're a believer. Something we already discussed yesterday, that the actions of non-believers will amount to not in the Akhirah. This is wow, which is for hal, those of you who are studying now. Right? And their hal, their state and condition is such that they are believers. That such a person will enter into Jannah and they will not be wronged or there will be no injustice done to them. Even the amount of a date seed, even the most trifling amount of injustice won't be done to them. That who can there be who is better in terms of their deen? Who is more noble, virtuous, excellent in terms of their deen? Then that person, aslama wajhahu lillah, literally means has submitted their face to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. I've translated this to you before. Has completely oriented themselves to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is the be-all and end-all of their life. That is this person. Who can be better than such a person? Wahua muhsinun. And on top of that, this person is doing these hasanat. Muhsin number one means the one who is performing hasanat, righteous good deeds. Number two is a person of adab and akhlaq. And number three is a person of spirituality, as Nabi Karim Sosa mentioned in the hadith in Bukhari and Muslim, that ahsan means to worship Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala as if you see him, or if you see him not, then you are aware that he sees you. So this person has all of those features. وَاتَّبَعَ مِلَّةَ إِبْرَاهِيمَ Hanifa. And number third, this person, man or woman, follows the millat of Ibrahim, and we've discussed this with you many times before, alayhi salam, Hanifa. 
And here the Spantel mentions a certain targhib or feature as to why one would want to follow the Millet of Ibrahim. So now there's a tafsir here that the Millet of Ibrahim is that Millet, that way, culture, civilization, lifestyle, that if you follow it, you will also become Khalil. So the translation is that Allah Spantel has selected Sayyidina Ibrahim salam to be his Khalil, to be his intimate close friend. So Allah subhanahu wa saying is if you follow the millat of Ibrahim, if you follow his way, you will have the same nisbat and you will also become the khalil or the intimate close friend of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. وَلَلَّهِ مَا فِي السَّمَوَاتِ وَمَا فِي الْأَرْضِ And to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala belongs each and everything, dominion and sovereignty and ownership and power and mastery over every single thing that lies in the realms above and all that lies which and all that lies on this earth. وَكَانَ اللَّهُ بِكُلِّ شَيْءٍ muhita. And indeed Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is all-encompassing over everything. In other words, His might and sovereignty and power. All is all-encompassing, all-encircling, surrounding each and everything. Next ayat, which is 127. So they will ask you, my beloved messenger, concerning women. As a particular issue they're going to ask. Who is going to ask the Ahli Kitab? So now you will see where this word fatwa and mufti and ifta and istifta came from. This is a Quranic term that is used for seeking a legal ruling. Yastaftuna means istifta, means to seek a fatwa. So what does Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala say? In response, قُلْ Say my beloved messenger, sallallahu to them. Allahu yuftikum fi hinna That Allah subhanahu is going to give you the fatwa. Allah subhanahu is going to give you all, i.e. you all, Ahlul Kitab, the fatwa, fi hinna regarding those women that you were asking about. Alright. وَمَا يُطْنَى alaykum. فِي الْكِتَابِ فِي يَتَامَ النِّسَاءِ اللَّاتِ لَا تُؤْتُونَهُنَّ مَا كُتِبَ لَهُنَّ So all that has been recited unto you in the book concerning those women orphans to whom you have not given them that which Allah Ta'ala had prescribed for them in the book. Why? Because your condition was such that you were yearning and waiting and hoping that you would do nikah with them, that you would marry them. Second, what Allah Ta'ala has revealed to you in the book concerning وَالْمُسْتَزْعَفِينَ min الْوِلْدَانِ That I've mentioned to you before are the children who are still yet to come of age, right? They're not yet in their level of physical, emotional maturity. So sometimes somebody may translate this for as feeble-minded. It's not feeble-minded, it means, and it's not so weak, it's not a weak child, it's suggesting that children, prepubescent children, by virtue of the fact that they have not attained physical and emotional maturity, are viewed as weak in terms of their capacity to act. وَأَن تَكُومُوا لِلْيَتَامَ بِالْقِسْتِ And third thing that Allah Ta'ala is mentioning to the Ahlul Kitab that was mentioned, prescribed for you in the book, was that you would establish for the orphans and you would treat the orphans بِالْقِسْتِ with absolute equity and justice. So Adil is justice, Qist is sometimes used in English for equity, but really both words are being suggested in both places, with equitable justice. وَمَا تَفَلُوا مِنْ خَيْرٍ And each and everything that you do that is from the good, فَإِنَّ اللَّهَ كَانَ بِهِ أَلِيمًا Indeed, Allah SWT is all-knowing about this. Sayyidina Aisha anha has narrated in the Sadiths in Bukhari that this ayah, the occasion of revelation of this ayah, verse number 127, was that there was a certain person who was a guardian, was a wakil over an orphan. And then that orphan inherited some amount of wealth. And the guardian didn't want that when the girl attained maturity that he should hand over her wealth. But instead what he wanted was that I would rather marry her 
and either keep her and or her wealth with me. So, again, although we've mentioned to you earlier that it is permissible to marry a woman if she comes of age, right? Even if she was previously an orphan under your care, but what Allah SWT is doing in Quran is doing tarbiyah, that your motive in marrying such a woman should not be her wealth. And again, this applies not just to orphan women, but in terms of all women, and I discussed that with you earlier, few days ago, what are the purposes and reasons behind which a person should seek to get married? Alright. Then Allah SWT ends by saying, we eat in everything that you do, Allah SWT will account for. Verses number 128 and onwards. That if a woman fears on behalf of her husband, ba'l and bu'ul is the plural of that that you saw earlier, this means husband, nushuz, so earlier yesterday you saw those ayat that talk about what would happen if a husband fears nushuz from his wife. And nushuz, like I told you, meant a high degree of infidelity. And some commentators have taken it to a high degree of infidelity up to and including outright adultery. And some commentators have taken it to mean exclusively outright adultery. That was in the case of women. Here in the case of men, it may mean the same thing. Infidelity up to Adultery or outright adultery in of itself. And again, the notion here is that neither the husband before, and now in this case the wife, does not have the four male witnesses to prosecute that person for a hud punishment. Or they may not want to. Or they may not even want to. Alright? So, Allah SWT says in this case, for this woman, that okay, number one, you fear from your husband, nushuz, and number two, o iradhan. I'rad means you fear that he is going to ignore you. Literally it means he's going to turn away. It may mean ultimate turning away. He may spurn you and may divorce you. It may also mean that he may simply just ignore you. Right? And that is what happens that when a man takes a mistress, whether that mistress be outside the bounds of Sharia, or whether he takes a mistress in the name of Nikah within the Sharia, he may start ignoring his wife. So she may have that fear. Alright? Then there is no harm on... The, and this is an expression in Arabic that sometimes suggests that something is just permissible. Here it's being used to suggest that it's preferable. Right? Literally that there is no harm, no detriment on the two of them. But here it means it is preferred for the two of them that what? That they should find some way to reconcile between one another that the husband and wife should make up. And I explained this exactly the same way when we did the earlier passage dealing with men who fear nushus on part of their wives. Allah SWT, even in such a gross violation of infidelity or even up to adultery, Allah SWT does not want the marriage to fall apart. It makes us reflect how much Allah SWT wants people who were married to be able to reconcile their differences. And then comes the famous ayat, ayah in Qur'an al-Kareem, which is generally invoked, was sulhu khair. And this isn't just for the husband and wife, but this is a general teaching that whenever there are differences and divergences and disagreements and hurt feelings and broken relationships, was sulhu khair, that reconciling them is better. This is the type of ayah that a person could recite, make dua to... Allah subhanahu and then recite this ayah or even just these two words, three words was sulhu khair before they engage in trying to either reconcile themselves with someone or as the third party trying to reconcile two people with one another. Right? In that sense the Qur'an al-Kareem can be used. Right? It's not a book that you just open up randomly and pick out something or think, you know, that some people unfortunately in Pakistan view the Qur'an like tarot cards. 
They want to make a decision, so that what I'm going to do is I'm going to open up the Quran randomly to a page. And whatever is on that page, that will be a sign for me. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala doesn't operate that way. <laughs> and when Allah ta'ala wants to send you signs, it won't be on the basis of your flipping through pages. The whole Quran is hidayah for you. Right? But what you can do is those ayat that do contain a hidayah or nasiha for any particular thing you're about to do, you can recite that ayah as barakah, as dua to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala before you engage in that activity. So anytime anyone wants to do salah, they should say these words with the niyat of dua and tilawat was sulhu khair and invoke the barakat of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and also makes their niyat clear that I'm doing this to get khair and I'm doing it because my Allah ta'ala wanted me to get this khair. So khair Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is saying here that this is best for them. However, what happens? Now what happens is that people, a shuha, that people, anfus means people's selves, but sometimes it does have the other meaning of a person's nafs. So ever present in the person's nafs mind is a shuha. Shuha in fancy English is translated as avarice. It's a mix between greed and selfishness. It's a type of greed that is born out of selfishness. What does it mean? So this man doesn't want to do salah for the, with the woman. He wants to keep her on the side and do something else also. So Allah subhanahu you see just recently Allah ta'ala had mentioned the permissibility of marrying more than one woman. But here Allah subhanahu is now doing tarbiyah of the men who marry more than one woman for all types of wrong reasons. And then after marrying more than one woman, how they mistreat the wife in a wrong way. So if they're doing it out of some selfish greed, this is wrong. If they don't make up, reconcile with the first wife due to some selfish greed, then this is wrong. in تُخْسِنُوا However, that if you all were to become people of ihsan and virtue and excellence, وَتَتَّقُوا And to become person of taqwa, فَإِنَّ اللَّهَ كَانَ بِمَا تَعْمُلُونَ خَبِيرًا Then indeed Allah SWT is extremely informed and altogether aware of each and every single thing that you do. Alright. Next ayah 129. This is an ayah that has been misunderstood by people, especially in the sense that it relates and connects to the ayat that we did yesterday, yesterday about being able to marry more than one woman. Number one, it means that you all do not, you don't possess and you will never ever possess the ability to be absolutely, perfectly equitable and just between a nisa, that's plural, between multiple women. Okay, so first it means that if you marry more than one wife, you will not be able to do perfect, equitable justice between them. This is not to be understood as some people saying that Allah Ta'ala is saying that don't do it. Because then, if I were to tell you that you cannot have perfect and true and just prayer, does that mean you shouldn't pray salah? You can never be the true and perfect abd of Allah SWT. Does that mean you become an atheist? Allah Ta'ala is not withdrawing a hukam. He's actually explaining something to humanity. That you don't have that capacity in you because you're a creature of emotions. And these are relationships that are based on emotions and feelings. Alright. Second meaning, however, what it can mean, it doesn't have to be understood to, or it certainly does refer to this issue of marrying multiple women. But it can also be referred to even a person who's married to one wife, that you, all of you, don't have the ability to be perfectly equitable and just in your behavior towards any woman, towards even one woman. A man doesn't have that ability. And both meanings can be held simultaneously. Walau harastum. Even if you, right, Allah harastum means that even if you have a hirs, no matter how much you desire to do so. 
No matter how much you desire, aspire, wish that you could do so, you wouldn't be able to do so. So now, what is the consequence of this? This ayah itself is going to tell you that what does Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala want, this, this fact that you cannot be absolutely equitably just between multiple women, what is the consequence that should have? Falat tamilu. Allah subhanahu wa doesn't say falat ankehu, that don't marry more than one. Allah is not saying that. Falat tamilu kullal mail that you should not become completely partial. This is the best way to translate this in English. That you should not become completely partial. You should not be completely biased against one of them. فَتَذَرُوهَا كَالْمُعَلَّكَ Such that you leave her, right? كَالْمُعَلَّكَ Like a woman who is suspended, literally suspended, means hanging, as you would say in English, saying that a woman is left hanging, means that you leave her on the side, that you leave her completely sidelined her. So what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is saying is you won't be able to attain perfection. So the consequences of that is simply that don't let yourself lapse into absolute imperfection. Don't let yourself... And this is a general teaching in deen of Islam. Right? Just because you can't do a hundred... You stand, cannot stay away from a hundred percent sin doesn't mean you let yourself drown in all sin. Right? Okay. Mm. Well, again, وَإِن تُصْلِهُ وَتَتَّقُوا that if you become people who reconcile and you adopt taqwa, then you will find Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Right? So what is Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala saying here? The deal with sulha. Sulha here refers to that if any event at any moment, you, whenever you experience or you are faced with that inability to be completely equitable and just between them, and therefore that's going to cause, right, a somewhat of a slight problem, you should do sulah in such cases. And then thereafter you should adopt taqwa and fear Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. If you do that, فَإِنَّ اللَّهَ كَانَ غَفُورٌ That indeed Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has always been and will always be all forgiving and all merciful with you. Now after all of this from yesterday and today, تَرْبِيَةً Now Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala deals with that last Situation that last resort which is known as divorce. And because divorce can take place in multiple ways, through talaq, through khulah, through ilah, so Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala mentions the, another word here which is called tafriq. Tafriq means separate, right? But don't think in the English language laws of marriage where there's a separation, that's something that's before divorce. Here by tafriq, Allah ta'ala means separation, i.e. divorce, i.e. you're no longer husband and wife. The freak means the bond is separated. The two atoms are separated. They're no longer one molecule. Right? Okay. وَإِن That if the two of them then split up. This is maybe a better way to put it. If the two of them then split up. That's when I split up. يُغْنِ اللَّهُ كُلَّمْ مِنْ سَعَتِهِ This is an extremely important ayah for even the young men and women. يُغْنِ اللَّهُ Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will make each and every one of them ghani. Yugni, for those of you who are studying Arabic, is Babi Ifal. Babi Ifal, to make ghani. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will make each and every one kullam. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will make each and every such person ghani min sa'atihi from his own vast expanse of his divine provision and sustenance. Why am I saying this is extremely important? So this is that ayah that should be recited if a person falls into that unfortunate and illegitimate situation of breakup and heartache. This is our answer to all of the pop songs ever written in history about how you should feel on breakup and heartache. You know that most of Western music lyrics is all about, you know, we love to say that to you, no? Remember, I saw you and him 
walking in the rain and I will never be the same. Right? Yes? This is the Islamic answer. So if any man, if there is any young man who wants to make tawbah from his relationship with a woman, there's any woman, she wants to make tawbah with her relationship with a man. Yes, we can acknowledge factually you are going to experience a feeling of withdrawal. Right? What is going to be the hope or incentive for you that you can get out of that withdrawal? This zabardast ayah of Qur'an al-Kareem, this call of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, your Rabb al-Kareem. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is saying, so it is technically originally about husband and wife and divorce, but it can refer to any case. So if a man and woman had an unlawful relationship and they separate for the sake of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala because they want to repent from that sin, and the two of them split up, then what will happen? Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will make each and every one of them, kullam, will make each and every one of them self-sufficient. Min sa'atihi, and you can't appreciate sa'ati means from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala's own divine emanations, His own wus'atih. Ilahi, his own expansive divine provision. So any woman or any man who wants to forget about a woman or man that he left for the sake of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, they should recite this ayah and they should have absolute yaqeen in this. This is the real yaqeen and iman that we need to have. That Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala does do things for us when we turn to Him in tawbah and repentance. Alright? وَقَانُ اللَّهُ wasian. And lest anybody not understand what that sa'atihi is, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala know that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, His divine provisions and divinity and His capacity and His capability, right? And His power to make you ghani is wasih, is extremely wide, infinite, expanses, limitless horizons. Hakima, and He is extremely wise. Right? So I'm giving you some Qur'ani nuskhas today. Wasilhu huh? khair and this other one. Indeed, what is the notion to erupt here is how wide is that wasat of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala? Again, same thing to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala belongs the dominion sovereignty of all that lies above and all that is in this earth. Okay. This part is over here. Anything we want to tell you here? Uh, on Shuh, if you were to see Surah Hashr, Surah 59, verse 9, and Surah Taghabun, Surah 64, verse 16, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has mentioned this issue of Shuh as well, and says that whomsoever is protected from Shuh, they are the ones who are successful. So this Shuh is a type of what you would maybe call in Urdu a type of lalaj. A type of lalaj, right? That a person just wants to keep covetousness, would be another way to put this avarice, greed, covetousness, selfishness. This is something that we should make dua to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, that He takes it out in the hadith. Nabi Karim also mentioned, transmitted by An-Nisa'i, that the worst of characteristics, traits in a person is shuh, and that instills fear in them. What does it mean? They're incapable to act. Because they just want to keep everything. And what happens is, so they just become incapable of acting. And you will find this, that people are like that in matters of emotional relationships. That because they don't want to lose the person. They don't want to let go of the person. Right? They have this greed and avarice and covetousness to keep that person. Then they're incapacitated, they're unable to act. Alright. So this was some hadith on sure. Alright, next ayah is ayat, uh, we start the next ayah, which is 131 onward. So Allah Ta'ala saying, indeed we literally give a wasiyat, we enjoin and instruct and command 
those who have been given the book before you, وَإِيَّاكُمْ And indeed you also. Those who have been given the book before you, and indeed you also. With what? أَنِتَّكُ That they should adopt taqwa towards Allah subhanahu Taqwa is the universal message. Maybe the single most important attribute that a person, human can have towards Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. إِنَّا أَكْرَمَكُمْ إِنَّ اللَّهِ أَتْقَاكُمْ Now, وَإِن تَكْفُرُوا فَإِنَّ لِلَّهِ Even were you to deny it, فَإِنَّ لِلَّهِ مَا فِي السَّمَوَاتِ وَمَا فِي الْأَرْضِ Indeed, to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will always belong the dominion and sovereignty of all that lies above and all that is on the earth. وَكَانَ اللَّهُ غَنِيًّا حَمِيدًا And indeed, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is ghani. He is absolutely independent, self-sufficient, right? Hamida and He is the being who is ultimately worthy of all praise. Then again for emphasis, وَلِلَّهِ مَا فِي السَّمَوَاتِ وَمَا فِي الْأَرْضِ وَكَفَى بِاللَّهِ وَكِيلًا So you saw this statement came about three or four times in four or five lines. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is doing this takrar for taqeed is supposed to have an impact on our heart. And many of us, you know, we have overly scientific minds. And the second we hear samawat and ard, we start thinking about all of the posters at home we have of galaxies and Milky Ways and right solar systems. And So it's not this is supposed to impact a person's heart. Right? This is supposed to impact a person's heart. That my Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is so tremendous, so incredible, so amazing, so powerful. That all that exists, right? That is the known universe and all of the unknown universes absolutely are completely subservient to him. So the feeling these ayats are supposed to have on a person is number one, that a person should feel that they should be subservient to them. Right? If there's any being that has such absolute power like that, that it's supposed to, the feeling is supposed to be put in a heart of taslim, of submission. Submission and subservience is the feeling Allah is trying to put into us. Second is a feeling of feeling, put it this way, that feeling that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is owner of all of that and He's still noticing me. Right? That I'm just a speck, right? Because you are on, you are a speck on Lahore. Lahore is a speck on Punjab. Punjab is a speck on earth. Earth is a speck on the solar system. Solar system is a speck on the Milky Way galaxy. The Milky Way galaxy is a speck on the galaxy clusters. All of that is a speck on the whole known universe. And the entire created physical universe is a speck compared to the dominions of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So we are just a speck on 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 a speck. And still Allah ta'ala is making me mukhatib and me his murad and is telling me, Wallahu yad'u ila dar salam. So the second feeling is supposed to put in a person, it's supposed to put in them a love for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So that human being who has absolute submission to Allah and absolute love for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, that's the right emotions to have. Okay? That's why these ayat are coming over again. Now Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, right, is going to give one other demonstration of His power. Very shine shana ayat of, ayat of Quran, surah number 4, again verse number 133. That if Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala wanted... He could take you away. He could be done with you. Ayyuhannas, all of humanity. He could be done with the, in the lot of you. All of humanity is nothing. And what would Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala be akhirin? Allah would bring some other, others. Whether yet another type of humanity or another type of creation. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala saying is He's showing how He is ghani here. Absolutely independent and unneedy and also making humanity feel another thing. That I'm trivial. 
Every human being should feel I'm completely trivial. I'm a trifle. I'm nothing but a trifle in the eyes of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So the third feeling here, after love and submission, the feeling here is humility. Love, submission, and humility is the third feeling. And indeed, Allah subhanahu wa is completely powerful and able to do this, to wipe away all of humanity just like that and bring yet another creation and make them the mukhatab of His Qur'an. So what is the failure being referred to here, the failure to have taqwa? That's how Allah began, right? In the beginning of this ayah, in the beginning of 131, Allah has told the people who have been given the book and the believers to adopt taqwa. مَنْ كَانُوا الدُّنْيَا فَإِنَّ اللَّهِ الدُّنْيَا Even that person who wishes to get rewards in this world, they should know that to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala belongs, with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala lies, all of the rewards of this world and the rewards of the akhirah. وَكَانَ اللَّهُ سَمِيًّا بَسِيرًا And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is all hearing and all aware and all watching. يَا أَيُّهَا الَّذِينَ آمَنُوا كُونُوا كُمَّامِينَ بِالْقِسْتِ شُهَدَاءَ that all you who believe you should be firmly established on equitable justice. Kuwamin can also mean you should be firmly supporting equitable justice. It can also mean you should be firmly establishing equitable justice. Shuhada alillah. In such a state, right? It can be hal or it can be tamiz here. Then in such a state that you are witnesses to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. That you know that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is watching you. You are aware that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala knows everything that you do. وَلَوْ أَلَىٰ أَنفُسِكُمْ أَوِلْ وَالِدَيْنِ وَالْأَقْرَبِينَ Alright. The Shana Nazul of this ayah, here there was a dispute that somebody came before Sayyidina Rasulullah wasallam, and it had to do with the dispute between the wealthy, a wealthy person and a poor person. And in that, Nabi Akareem wasallam. uh preferred the poor person because he was having compassionate for that poor person. So here this ayah came down that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is saying that you have to be firmly established on justice, bearing witness to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and as witnesses to the existence of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala knowing that Allah is witnessing what you do, walau ala anfusikum, even if you must testify or establish justice against your own selves or against your parents or against relatives. In yukun ghaniyan aw faqiran that whether such a person is rich or whether such a person is affluent, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is greater than them. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala ikameen fa'allahu awla bihima. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala takes precedent over them. Being, establishing equitable justice as witnesses to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala takes precedence over whether a person is rich or poor. It can also mean that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is closer to each and every one of them means that their relationship with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is more close or more prominent in their identity than their being rich or poor. In other words, everybody should be treated as an Abdullah first and foremost, irrespective of whether they are parents or relatives or rich or poor when it comes to justice. And you should not follow your desires and your whims or your leanings or your inclinations in such a way that you become uh, can, uh, when, while you are establishing justice. All right. Here in the Quran Karim and Allah SWT is mentioning the extreme need for justice. Simply speaking, you can say that Allah SWT is saying is there should not be any favoritism, any bias, any partiality, any prejudice, or the consequences of any discrimination, any, impartial, uh, any partiality, any bias in dealing in any particular case. 
Here you're going to see in this ayah and the upcoming ayahs that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has emphasized extremely the establishment of justice on earth. And one aspect to that is also this issue of testimony. Justice and testimony and witnessing, right? And this notion of the testifying of witnesses and their offering of testimony in courts as the means to establish justice. Alright. Next up, we're in. Here Allah SWT is saying that if you distort your speech, Talwu means if you twist your words, you distort your speech, you amend your words, you misspeak, you misstate, or you stay back altogether. You don't offer the testimony, right? You turn away, you refrain from offering the testimony. Either way, know that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is that indeed Allah subhanahu is all aware with each and everything that you do. So this is, right, the burden, we did this with you before a few days ago, perhaps in Surah Al-Imran, that whenever a person agrees to witness something, then there is farth upon them, required by them in law to offer their testimony in court if they are called upon, and they must not change their words, or mince their words, or twist their words, or misspeak, or in any way engage in any type of false testimony, nor should they turn away from that, but they must do it. Ya amanu, aminu billahi wa rasulihi. So here Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is saying, this is a very often quoted ayah in Qur'an al-Kareem. Fair, one thing I was also going to mention here is that when we're talking about justice, right, you see in the Muslim world that unfortunately we're not following this ayah, right? The rich have a much greater access to justice in this country than the poor do, Right? And this is why this is a phrase in lawyers and legal rights, what they call poor man's justice. So poor man's justice is pretty much non-existent in this country, right? And it's, you know, no matter how much the elites talk about this country, this country is really pretty much an elite run by elites for elites. All the lawyers' movement has never even issued one manifesto or one pamphlet about how to bring justice to the common man. But they're interested in about the elites, who the elites think should be Supreme Court Chief Justice or not, right? So, you know, that's what we often tell you, that I mean, you know, all respect to our lawyers and aspiring lawyers and budding lawyers that are sitting here, right? Uh, but, uh, you know, the purpose of it, just like, you know, the doctors, a doctor used to be a person who was a healer. And he was healing because he was healing for the sake of Allah SWT if he was Muslim. Or at least healing because healing is a noble thing to do if he was an atheist. Just like that a wakil or a lawyer or a judge or a jurist, their job was to be establishers and upholders of justice. It wasn't meant to descend into just being a mere profession or a slogan or rallying, right? And so if there is a community that has supposedly outwardly taken upon themselves this responsibility, i.e. the lawyers and judges of this country, to establish that justice, and they don't, and all of the masses seem to have an ijma on this issue, then it's a very big thing for them to think about. And rather than entering politics, it would be much better that they could actually first fulfill the function, which is their primary function, which is to establish law, order, and justice. Now what does that mean? Now one way the secular elites will try to cloak and veil the actual problem is it will suggest that the law and order problem is due to certain acts of violence perpetrated by certain groups and that's certainly a problem but if you go to any you walk into the actual courts right whether it's in Lahore you go to what do they call it Kachiri I don't know what words you have for these places right Kachiri, Kachiri I don't know what's going on in these places 
But you actually ask anybody. Just just take a survey. The Lums kids should do a sociological survey. Just stand outside the court. Everybody who comes out, ask them, did you feel you got justice? Say, justice? <laughs> right? Most of the time they're saying that the, the, it's been postponed, redirected, the other side. For years this takes place with people. They don't even get their day in court because people have ways to delay these things. So this is a big problem and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala wants. It's part of Quranic Islam. Allah ta'ala wants Quranic insan to live in a society that has equity and justice in it. Alright? Okay, so next ayah is Ya ayyuhalladzina amanu aminu billahi wa rasulihi. So this is a very famous sign which Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is addressing the people who believe to have belief. And so this is suggesting that there are two types of iman. One is called nafsi iman. So that's ya ayyuhalladzina amanu Oh, you have adopted nafsi iman, who now you have actually left kufr, left shirk, i.e. left atheism, left polytheism. You believe that Allah and Allah alone is the only divinity, the only God, the only being worthy of worship. You believe in akhirah, believe in Sayyidina Rasulullah, he as the last absolute, last and final messenger and prophet in every single sense of the word. You believe in a life after death, you believe in a hereafter. Right? You have nafsi iman. And there are other some things like that. You believe in Allah Ta'ala's decree, etc. So now what should you do? Aminu. Now you need to really believe with passion in your heart. You need to make this journey now to kamal iman. So nafsi iman and kalima is just an entry point. It's the beginning. You've taken admissions into the world of iman. Now you need to go for kamal iman. So, aminu have kamal iman billahi when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala wa and His beloved Messenger sallallahu alayhi wa sallam wal kitab alladhi nazzala Allah rasulihi and that book which is Allah ta'ala has revealed on His Messenger i.e. Quran al-Kareem wal kitab alladhi anzala min qabl and you should have proper iman in all the books that were revealed by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala prior to this. Wa may yakfur billahi and that person who chooses instead to disbelieve and deny Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, wa malaikatihi, and deny Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala's angels, wa kutubihi, and all of Allah ta'ala's revealed books and scriptures, wa rusulihi, and all of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala's messengers and prophets, wa yawm al-akhri, and the day of judgment, fakadhillah dhalalam ba'ida, indeed such a person has gone astray a vast deviance, has deviated a manifest wide, far deviance from Surat al-Mustaqeen. Alright. Now Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is going to mention a particular group of people. إِنَّ الَّذِينَ آمَنُوا ثُمَّ كَفَرُوا ثُمَّ آمَنُوا ثُمَّ كَفَرُوا ثُمَّ أَزْدَادُوا كُفْرًا لَمْ يَكُنِ اللَّهُ لِيَغْفِرَ لَهُمْ وَلَا لِيَهْدِيَهُمْ سَبِيلًا So there are some people who they take iman, then they disbelieve, then again take iman, and then again they disbelieve. So then what happens after this process, then kufran. Then what happens is Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala increases them in disbelief. Actually it's saying that they increase in their disbelief, but this is to be understood in light of those ayahs where Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala sets a seal on their heart. Right? So it first happened after them selecting kufr, how many times? Twice. When they selected kufr twice. Second way you can understand, when they left Iman twice. When they left Iman twice. So this is suggesting that Allah subhanahu wa only sets a seal on a person's guidance. Allah subhanahu wa only stops guiding a person after at least twice they've been guided and twice they've spurned it. So the literal meaning of the ayah is talking about belief and disbelief. 
it can also be understood because the end of the ayah, the thamara or natija, the consequence and effect of the ayah, but, but, which was there, let me finish it, so Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will not forgive them, and wala liyahdiyahum, and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will not give them hidayah anymore to the sabil. So this ayah is what establishes that there's no human being who never receives hidayah. There's no unbeliever who has never received hidayah. And you can understand from this ayah that every believer gets, every human gets at least two blasts of hidayah. These two blasts of hidayah, two shots of hidayah, two doses of hidayah, two moments of at least have been understood by commentators in different ways. Some have understood that the first dose of hidayah is Allah Rabbikum. When Allah subhanahu wa called all of the human arwah, right? and presented himself to them in all of his might and majesty and beauty and splendor and glory. That was the first level of hidayah. That is when every ruh gets what we call the fitra, and they get the inherent intrinsic ability to know and understand and recognize Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And the second dose of hidayah would be at least then one time in this world, they would have the possibility, it would dawn on them. At some point, and we're just talking about iman here, so the Qur'anic theology is teaching that there is no atheist other than they have actually had at least one shot in this world that in their heart, in their mind, they understood and stood on the brink of iman, but they chose to spurn it. They're talking about basic iman. Not saying that they understood everything about Ramadan or fasting or how to do hajj. We're talking about existence in an Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala who would communicate to humanity. The Qur'anic God concept, they stood on the brink of that at least once. Other commentators say that no, both times refer to this world. Both times refer to hidayah, that, uh, chances at hidayah that a person gets in this world. That would mean that every human being is brought to the verge of iman at least twice in their life. And again, I'm saying at least, right? At least. Okay? It may be more than that. Alright. But when a person continues to spurn Allah subhanahu wa then neither will Allah forgive them, nor will they guide them, Sabila, to the right path to the straight way ever again. Alright. Who does this description fit the most? The Munafiqeen. Right? And literally the Munafiqeen at the time of the Prophet And what it's also suggesting here then the Munafiqeen, there were two types of Munafiqeen. I've done this before. Those who were outright disbelievers and complete fakers and those who kept wavering back and forth. Wavering back and forth. So now if you're talking about that person who has been twice brought to the verge of Iman in Medina Manorah, has been brought to Iman in front of the Prophet ﷺ, has seen the Prophet ﷺ, right? And then twice they've chosen to disbelieve live the Prophet ﷺ, then that person may understand that that's two shots that they got that were incredible golden shots. What we would do to get one such shot like that, right? And they turn down two such shots. So what is Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala going to say to them now? Bashr al-munafikina bi'anna lahum adhaban alima. I explained this to you before that Bashr literally means glad tidings. This is not a glad tiding. But the munafikin used to be happy in the sense that they thought they had expressed joy and gladness that this way of life that they carved out is the best. So we get the best of both worlds of iman and kufr. That's what they thought and they were happy. So Allah ta'ala is saying, no, this is not the happiness that you will get. If you, the happiness and joy that you will get is what? To bashir al-munafiqeena, give them the glad tidings of bi'anna lahum adhaban adhima, that what is in store for them is a terribly painful punishment. This is something for us to reflect as well. Some of us think when we compromise on deen in the name of balance, in the name of enlightened moderation, we think we've picked the best way, that we are now enjoying. It's a statement in English. 
enjoying the best of both worlds. Have your cake and eat it too. Vuta cake I have no problem with that. <laughs> We'd love for you to have your cake and eat it too. But what it means is, right, that have your iman and do sin too. That's what inline moderation means. Right? Be like Sayyidina Abu Bakr and also be like Abu Jahl. Right? So that's not okay. And that person who thinks that and is happy with that, and is happily and content on their lukewarm imam, is happy and content with the fact that they pray five times a day, but they're not disturbed by content, I mean, but they're not disturbed by the other commands of Islam that they leave. They're not disturbed by their failures in adab, or their failures in ikhlaq, or failures in other ibadah, or failures in taqwa. But they think that they have found the right mix, right? Well, they should, we should be worried, people like us who have that problem, that this ayah could also apply to us. And those who take the unbelievers as their beloved, dear, intimate friends and confidants, other than the believers, that do they think that izza is to be found by that? Right? But know that all izza means all honor and dignity belongs only and only and entirely to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala alone. And you really see that today, right? You know, I mean, and I don't mean to always, and I know sometimes people feel that I'm always, uh, uh, and I do definitely, I confess that it definitely appears very much that I'm sort of talking down to this particular class of society. And I'm not meaning to do that. But I have observed, and if all of you are honest, I'm not saying this to be sarcastic or cynical anyway, or snide, but many of you would have noticed this as well, that the Pakistani Muslim, who is lukewarm in his, his Islam, really does oftentimes try to curry favor with unbelievers. And if an American likes them, they're so happy. It's their heart's joy if the American who's visiting, right, from some other company praises them. They feel like this is their izza. This is their izza. I'm not saying there's nothing wrong with that. If you treated them with such professionalism, if you were so excellent in your work that the American manager praised you, that's a good thing. That's a good thing. But should that be what causes your heart to rejoice? This is what Allah is trying to explain in Quran. That actions and emotions are two separate things. In terms of your actions and dealings with unbelievers, you should be incredibly sweet and sincere and professional such that they praise you. Yes. But their praise, their, your izza does not lie in their praise for you. Your heart's joy should not lie in their praise for you. Your heart's joy should lie in Allah Ta'ala's being happy with you. And what happens and sometimes a person like that, they end up compromising. What, what does it mean? They don't do something that the deen of Islam wants them to do because they're embarrassed in front of that person. Right? They're embarrassed in front of that person. So this is a shame, right? All is that lies to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And again, this is not, I'm not saying this. This is Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala saying this in Quran. That those who take unbelievers as their awliya, thinking that therein lies their izza, right? And maybe the reason why I encounter this so much is that when sometimes I meet people in Pakistan and they find out that I was born and raised in America, some of them try to impress on me. And not they're not... They're doing it in an unthinking way. They don't realize what they're doing. But they try to impress on me that how many times they've also been to America and how much they also know about America and how many relatives of theirs also in America. And this is the first thing they tell me. 
And believe me, Americans aren't telling one another, right, that, oh, I have such and such friends in Pakistan. They don't act like that, right? They don't think that there is that lies in that, right? That, oh, really, I had a brother who did a stint in Islamabad, right? Oh, I've got three friends who are also Pakistani, right? They don't, they're not going to think like that, right? So the believer, the mu'min, the mu'min's is that lies with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So we're not negating these relationships. Those relationships should be there. It should be there. But our izzat means our heart's joy. The feeling of honor in our... When will our heart feel dignified? Our heart feels dignified when we stay away from sin. Our heart rejoices when we do fulfill the commandments of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. That's what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is trying to say here. Alright? Okay. وَقَدْ نَزَلَ عَلَيْكُمْ فِي الْكِتَابِ أَنْ إِذَا سَمِئْتُمْ آيَاتِ اللَّهِ يُكْفَرُوا بِهَا وَيُسْتَحْزَأُوا بِهَا Okay, what is this saying? That indeed, what has been revealed down upon you. Now who is being referred to here as you? This is the same Ahl Kitab, that there are such people, that it has already been revealed to you in the book, that when you hear the verses of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala being rejected, when you hear them, so this is actually short for the believers, when you hear believers, this is what should affect your heart. When you hear that people disbelieve in Quran, when you hear they disbelieve in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, and they mock Quran, and they make fun of it, and they make fun of its teachings, right? You shouldn't sit with such people. That's Adal saying. So what is the criteria, right? And believe me, if any American finds out you're anti-American, they won't sit with you. It doesn't matter how professional, how nice you are. If they feel that you're anti-American. So Allah Ta'ala is saying is the believer, if they find out somebody is anti-Allah. Right? When the believer finds out that somebody is anti-Allah, they don't sit with them. So Allah Ta'ala is saying, let's just word for word translation. فَلَا تَقْعُدُوا مَعَهُمْ Allah Ta'ala's command, do not sit with them. Do not sit with them. What does it mean? It doesn't mean don't sit with them across the business table. This is referring to that wilayah. Don't be friends. How can you befriend somebody? They would never befriend anyone who is anti-American. How could you befriend somebody who is anti-Allah? Maybe you're befriending them for da'wah. That's a separate thing. But if you're befriending them because you think your izzah lies in that friendship, isn't it? Right? Not like that. Hatta. Right? Hatta. So what, until you cannot, do not sit with them until and unless that... يَخُودُ فِي حَدِيثٍ غَيْرِهِ إِنَّكُمْ إِذَا مِثْلُهُمْ إِنَّ اللَّهَ جَامِعُ الْمُنَافِكِينَ وَالْكَافِرِينَ فِي جَهَنَّمَ جَمِعَ Alright. If you... إِنَّكُمْ إِذَا مِثْلُهُمْ That indeed you will become like them. What does it mean? Now you may not become anti-Allah, but you may become also unconcerned with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. You may also start to think that dignity lies in your GDP and per, per capita income. You may also think that dignity lies alone in how the rules of traffic are observed. 
By the way, Yebi, this is a myth in Pakistan. You just have to come to my hometown of New York City and see that Americans can be terrible drivers as well. <laughs> right? And yes, some of them are the Pakistani cab drivers. <laughs> will be it. Right? But a lot of them are the other ones as well. Right? It be in nakuma idham mithlahum. That you will become like them. Jalat al saying, from what? When you sit with a person who's anti-Allah thinking that your that lies in becoming a close companion with them, you will become like them. This is Qur'an, mentioning a process. And this is a part of our hidayah. Mentioning a process to us so we can stay away from it. So we can stay away from it. Now, one can extract a more general uh, ruling from this. And a more general ruling is it's not just applying to unbelievers. It can apply to non-practicing believers as well. It can apply to anyone. Anyone to whatever extent they are distant and removed from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. If you sit with them for this reason. Be very clear, it's a very precise teaching. If you sit with them for this reason. If you sit with them for this particular reason. That you think your izza lies in becoming a deep and intimate friend with them. And you sit through their mockery of deen, right, which is the, the kufr and the istiza. You sit through and listen to their disbelief and their mockery of deen, mum, right, thinking that your it lies that you shouldn't say anything, or that you should supposedly be open-minded and tolerant to hear such things, right, in that case you will be like them. It doesn't mean if you sit with them for another niyat, it doesn't mean if you sit with them when they're doing something else, right, so that's what, hatta, uh, Hatta yahudu fi hadith in ghayrihi until they turn away to other types of conversation. Right? So then, if they do that, you can sit with them. So don't sit with them when they're engaged in kufr, when they're engaged in istiza, thinking that sitting with them lies in, in that lies your isa. Right? So that could be another way. That if you sit with a secular progressive Muslim who is mocking Islam, and you think that you need to sit with them to curry their favor, that's also not a good thing to do. If you want to sit with them, hoping that maybe you could try to do da'wah and explain to them that you've been deceived about Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, and Islam is not this terrible thing that you have been made, you've been led to believe that it is, that's a separate thing. Alright? Okay. أَلَّذِينَ يَتَرَبَّسُونَ بِكُمْ فَإِن كَانَ لَكُمْ فَتْهُمْ مِنَ اللَّهِ قَالُوا This is about the munafiqeen. Oh, sorry, say, Jamil Indeed, Allah subhanahu wa is that being who is going to gather all of the hypocrites and all the believers all together in entirety, each and every last one, fi jahannama, inside of jahannam. So what does it mean? That there's another gathering, right? That these people will end up in a gathering into the fire of jahannam. Now again, this is not something for us to think about anybody like this, that we think that they're monophic or we think they're kafir or we think they're going to jahannam, but we should be wary of the gatherings in which Allah Ta'ala is openly disbelieved and Allah Ta'ala's wishes and commands are openly flouted. Right? So one last example I will give you. To go to that mixed gathering in which alcohol is served. Right? So that is making a mockery of the commandments of Allah Subhanahu Wa Ta'ala. But thinking that your diplomatic status or your izzat lies in associating in such receptions, that could be an example of this. Right? That no, your izzat doesn't lie in that. And whatever worldly izzat you may get due to associating in that, you're going to lose an izzat with Allah SWT. So people should know, you should have no shame in saying that, look, I don't go to mixed gatherings where alcohol is served. But people are too ashamed to say that. People are too ashamed to say that. 
They don't have any shame saying that I don't go to gatherings where there are ten or more Mulvies reciting Quran. And they'll have no shame in telling you that. Right? You shouldn't have any shame in telling people that. But look, I love you. I, I, I can... I mean, I'm talking about between believers now. Right? That I love you and I would love to spend time with you. But if you're going to invite me to a gathering where you and some other like-minded friend of yours are going to openly flout, that's also meaning of istihza. It doesn't just mean drawing cartoons. Istihza, making a mockery, means to openly flout the commandments of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and drink even, quote-unquote, socially. I can't join you in that gathering. I'm sorry. Other than that, you guys want to come over for tea? I'm fine with it. Right? But I can't join you in that gathering. And people should know that. But that's what I'm saying, that many Muslims who have that view, who don't drink, but they're too ashamed not to go to the gathering where drinking takes place. Why? Because it's a social status. Right? So what is that social status? That, that is it. And that's what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is saying. No, is it lies with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. You may gain your izzat with those people, you will lose your izzat with Allah. Right? Okay. So that's, I think that was a good example that explained what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala was trying to teach us in Qur'an al-Karim. And those people who are yearning, anticipating, waitful, watchful anticipation that what will happen to you. If you ever receive a victory from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, that what do they say? They say, each and every of them will say that uh, were it not that we were with you. When in other words, the Munafikin are sitting there and if you win, they would, sit, they would wish that they had actually gone forth on battle and had been with you. And if the unbelievers win, right? And this is, for example, referring to an example of Uhud. So what will they say to their fellows? They will say that, look, didn't, weren't, you, weren't we triumphant over you? Didn't we prevent you or stop you or protect you from the believers? So the munafiqeen will go to the kuffar and say, what? When the Muslims win, they say, we were with you. When the unbelievers win, they will say, we were with you. Right? They're going back and forth. فَاللَّهُ يَحْكُمُ بَيْنُكُمْ Indeed, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala would decide between you. يَوْمَ الْقِيَامَةِ On the Day of Judgment. وَلَنْ يَجْعَلَ اللَّهُ لِلْكَافِرِينَ الْمُؤْمِنِينَ سَبِيلًا And never ever will Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala make for the unbelievers any way, any sabil over the believers. Now this is a question that people often have, right? That what exactly does this mean? What does this mean? Because if you look in this world, it seems that very much, right, the unbelievers have many, many sabil over the believers. So one way people have taken this is that if a person is a true believer, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, if the mu'mineen is plural, if the Muslims as a collective truly follow all the dictates of Iman, in that situation, then the unbelievers will never be given a way of triumph or victory over them. Second, uh, what it could mean is that in terms of darajah or in terms of akhirah, Allah Ta'ala will never ever let the unbelievers triumph or supersede the believers. Alright? But because we are not mu'mineen in this sense, uh, we don't, this eye doesn't seem to be applying to us, right? That the unbelievers very much seem to have many of a sabil, many of a way, many of a way to obstruct and oppress believers all over the world. Alright? Innal munafikina yukhadi'un Allah. That indeed the hypocrites are only and only 
they think that they are deceiving Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, but in fact Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is the one who is deceiving them. By deceiving here it means that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala let them think that their strategy of nifaq is successful. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is going to let them keep thinking that their strategy of nifaq is successful. Alright. وَإِذَا كَامُوا إِلَى الصَّلَاةِ And this is very important ayah also for us to reflect on. This is surah number 4, verse number 142. وَإِذَا And whensoever the munafiqs stand in the salat for prayer. قَامُوا kusala. They stand in a completely disinterested, unemotional, lazy, apathetic form. So what does this mean? Now this is what many of the Mufassirin and Muhaddisin also mention as a category of verses and some hadith that are called the Alamati Munafiki. That what are their signs? What are their trademarks? What are their hallmarks? What are their symptoms? What is their description? What is their mannerism? What are their characteristic traits? What are their features? And why do they single these things out? Because we as mu'mineen would not want to have any of these alamat of the munafiqeen inside of us. And when we look at this one, that indeed whence, when they say so they do pray, but whenever they stand for prayer, what do they do? They pray dishearted, disinterested, lazy, apathetic, with sloth. Just sometimes we say, Right? So this is very dangerous because we feel that we have the same thing, right? We stand with the same type of disinterest and apathy and laziness in our salah. So this is very important. What does it mean then the believer, the believer stands in his salah passionately with their heart, with complete presence of heart. Sometimes in Arabic they call it huzur qalb that their heart is present in their prayer. So when we stand, our bodies are physically present. We want to make sure our, our hearts are emotionally and spiritually present in that salah. Next attribute of their salah, yura'unan nasa, they're praying for show. They want people to see them there. This can happen to the believing Muslim as well. Let's say there's a believing Muslim who lives near a masjid, and therefore he starts going to the masjid regularly for prayer and congregation. And then if one day he feels like missing for whatever reason, his laziness, his sleep, whatever, then all of a sudden he thinks that, oh, people will notice I'm not there. If he starts thinking that people will notice I wasn't there in the jamal, and then he goes for that reason, that otherwise his emotion, his feeling, his 100% feeling is he would rather be lazy and pray at home. But if he goes to the masjid that people will see him, then he will fall under the second category of sign of hypocrites. nasa, That people should see and he should be counted amongst the people who are present at that particular prayer. Second, وَلَا يَذْكُرُونَ اللَّهَ A third, وَلَا يَذْكُرُونَ اللَّهَ إِلَّا قَلِيلًا Third sign of the munafiq. That when they pray, inside their prayer, and we're going to take this, extrapolate this generally, but first meaning is that when inside their prayer, when they stand for prayer, they don't remember Allah except a little bit. It means that even the munafiq is able to do a little of zikrullah in their salah. So not only now should we be worried that we're like the munafiq, they may even be better than us. Because we may be ones who have zero zikr of Allah in our salah. If we ever pray a salah in which we're not able to remember Allah Ta'ala at all in that prayer, it means that their munafiqs are better. Because the munafiq, the Qur'an is testifying that they have a little zikr of Allah in their prayer. And then generally this ayah has been used overall, not just in prayer but outside prayer generally, that even the munafiqeen has zikr-i 
And that's where Allah Ta'ala, you're going to see this coming later. Allah Ta'ala addresses the believers, Ya ayyuhalladina amanu dhkurullaha dhikran kathira, kathir. That the sign of a mu'min, plain mu'min, not special level category of wali or muttaki or other categories in Quran. Plain mu'min's attribute is they have dhikri kathir, that they remember Allah Subhanahu wa ta'ala abundantly. So then if a person wants, for example, let's say, right, tonight, so Maghrib, Ramadan is going to start, inshallah, and if all of us live through that, then just like we want to fast, another thing we should think that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, since I'm offering one further to you in these 30 days of fasting in Ramadan, why not use this opportunity to fix another further that I do, which is to fix my salah? And why don't I try to fix three things in my salah? At least let me take out three of the hypocritical attributes from my salah. So number one, and we make dua and make effort that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala stand in my salah with passion, with yearning, with love, not with laziness and sloth. And second, that Allah ta'ala want to pray only and only for you, only and only in your name and only for your sake. And this can be accomplished sometimes by praying some few rakat of nafil in the heart of the night when only and only Allah knows that you're praying. And number three, that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, I want to learn how to remember you more inside of my prayer. I want to pray a dhikr, a prayer of dhikr. And for that, then a person should practice dhikr, should make more and more dhikr outside salah. The more and more you remember Allah Ta'ala outside salah, the more you will be able to remember Him inside your salah. And the more you are unaware of Him outside your salah, the more you will be unaware of Him inside your salah. Alright. Next attribute of the munafiqeen, mudabzabina bayna zalik. Sometimes this is also used, people use it as a pull quote, as they say from Quran, and they use this as, that's okay, as long as you don't use it negatively against some believer, but if you use it just to describe the situation, so mudabzab means that you're just wandering to and fro, a non-committal, non-attached, swaying to and fro, neither here nor there. Neither here nor there. Alright? La ilaha La ilaha ula'i wa la ilaha ula'i That they are neither of the mu'mineen and they are neither of the kuffar. They're just going back and forth to and forth. وَمَنْ يُدْلَلَ اللَّهُ فَلَنْ تَجِدَ لَهُ سَبِيلًا And that person whom Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala then after their nifaq ultimately then finally Allah ta'ala then sends them astray or keeps them astray or casts them astray or lets them drift astray, then you will never ever be able to find for such a person any way back to become rightly guided. Ya Same thing being repeated again, that all you who believe, don't take the disbelievers as your intimate beloved friends, preferring them over the believers, أَتُرِيدُونَ أَن تَجْعَلُوا لِلَّهِ عَلَيْكُمْ سُلْطَانًا مُبِينًا That is it your wish that by doing so, is it your wish that you want that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala عَلَيْكُمْ سُلْطَانًا مُبِينًا That Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala sultan means an authority. Authority mubin, a clear and manifest authority. Right? Are you trying to set up for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala a clear and manifest authority over you? What this means is this act of taking the unbeliever as a wali is a sultan mubin that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will have over us on the day of judgment. Alright? Okay. 
This is also another famous ayah of Quran. That indeed the hypocrites will be in the lowest and lowest, and literally physically the lowest level, the lowest recesses cast to the bottom most pit from the fire of Jahannam. Mulan Tajadalahum Nasira and in those deep, deep, low, low recesses they will not find you will not be able to find for them, and as you will not see ever for them, they will not be ever for them, Nasira, any helper who can take them out of that, or even take them up one daraja in Jahannam, or even alleviate one drop of that punishment of Jahannam. Illa Tabu. So now here Allah Ta'ala keeps open the door for the Manafikin both the technical munafiqeen and any Muslim who is going back and forth in a life of nifaq, any Muslim who is demonstrating or has in them any of the signs of munafiqeen. So what is that almost powerful thing? إِلَّذِينَ تَابُوا Except for those who make tawbah to Allah subhanahu ta'ala. So you should think that tawbah, if tawbah had, you should, we should make this du'a in Ramadan, and, and generally throughout the year, that Ya Allah, tawbah has the power. To take a munafiq, a person who you just described in Qur'an al-Kareem, that who is fiddalkil asfali min al-nar, that who is going to be in the lowest and lowest of depths of the fire of Jahannam. And that tawbah can take them out and to bring them into Jannat. And certainly that tawbah can take me, a sinning Muslim, out from my temporary state of Jahannam. And the sinning Muslims will be in the topmost, there's still nothing... <laughs> to think that one can handle, but the topmost level of Jahannam, so certainly Tawbah should be able to take me out from that. So, tabu, the person who makes Tawbah, wa aslahu, and then the person who makes amends, means and subsequently acts righteously, wa'tasamu billah, and that person who then grabs firmly to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, adheres lovingly to Him, wa akhlasu deenahum lillahi, and makes pure and sincere their deen, only and only for the sake of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, fa'ula'ika ma'al mu'mineen, that such a munafiq who makes tawbah will be with the mu'mineen in terms of all of the things that Allah Ta'ala has mentioned for mu'mineen and what is that thing? And surely, sure enough, Allah Ta'ala will bestow on those mu'mineen an ajran adhima, a tremendous and great reward. مَا يَفْعَلُ اللَّهُ بِأَذَابِكُمْ إِنْ شَكَرْتُمْ that what does Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala have to do with punishing you? There is no punishment that would come upon a person if a person, if, or you were to be grateful to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, if you were to believe in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, makanullahu shakiran alima. Indeed, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is all appreciative of what you do, will reward you for the things that you do, alima, and knows everything that you do. Knows everything that you do and will appreciate and reward you for each and every thing that you do. Alright. Here Allah Ta'ala is saying that indeed Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala does not love. So I said you want to keep track of those things as well. What al-jahra bisu'i, that a person openly says words of evil. Words of evil could mean words of kufr, could mean words of brash statements, rash statements, cynical, sarcastic, mocking statements can also refer to any words in which constitute sin, such as lying, 
black-biting, slander, can also refer to any words that are negotiating or trying to bring about sin, such as the words of a loan agreement, such as the words of interest, such as the words of illicit relationships, the whisperings of love between two lovers who do not love within the bounds and wishes of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, can refer to any such pronouncements and proclamations that are constituting a displeasure to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Illa man zulim, this only meant, now referring to the extreme case of disbelief, that if that person who is being oppressed and injustice is being to them, if to save their life or to save themselves from extreme injustice and oppression, they pretend to say, they pretend to say without believing some words of su. So for example, if somebody puts a gun to your head and says, you know, you must say you disbelieve in Allah, it's permissible in Islam to say that but not believe it, but to say it as a lie, but to say it because you are a person upon whom injustice is being perpetrated. اللَّهُ سَمِيعَ And indeed Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is all listening, is all hearing. In tubdu khairan, that if you do anything good openly, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will know it, أَوْ تُخْفُوهُ Or even if you hide anything good that you do openly, even then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is Samir Alim, He is all listening and all knowing. أَوْ تَعْفُوا أَنْ and if you forgive when somebody does any evil to you, then you should know that Allah subhanahu is all forgiving, all powerful. Here, one major teaching that is mentioned in verse 149 is to be forgiving for other people. Alright? And here Allah subhanahu has mentioned this in... In Surah Nur, which is Surah number 24, verse number 22, when Allah Taala says that you should forgive and overlook, they, they, the believers, I, you, should forgive and overlook, and do not, do you not like that Allah Taala forgives you? Do you not love and wish that Allah Taala should forgive you? Allah Taala is most forgiving and most merciful. So the rub here in that ayah and in this ayah is that we should be pardoning and forgiving over one another. Ta'fu, we should be forgiving and pardoning over the ill treatment that others give to us if we want Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to be forgiving and pardoning over us. This is a very important rapt and this is why our deen and Sayyidina Rasulullah sallallahu taught us that we should number one, conceal the sins of others. That's in a hadith. Number one, we should conceal the sins of others if we want Allah ta'ala to conceal our sins. That is Allah ta'ala's attribute of being as-sattar. Number two, we should overlook. What does overlook means? Overlook means in our heart, we should try not to let our heart get hurt over the sins of another. It's very difficult because when a person does something to hurt you, it's the most natural thing for you to feel hurt. It requires a lot of what we call zarf and hilm. There are certain dini attributes. Hilm and tahammul. So this is what is mentioned when they talk about adorning yourself with the attributes of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. That certain of his attributes you're supposed to adorn yourself is. So one of his attributes is al-halim. And to whatever extent a human being is capable of being halim, a person should be halim and that's how they become abdul halim. And halim means to not be forbearing, to have tahammul, to have hil, to not get yourself get worked up when somebody does something that legitimately, emotionally should be something that rouses you up. So this is what is being mentioned here. إِنَّ الَّذِينَ يَكْفُرُونَ بِاللَّهِ وَرَسُولِهِ وَيُرِيدُونَ أَيْنْ يُفَرِّكُوا بَيْنَ اللَّهِ وَرَسُولِهِ وَيُكُولُونَ 
نؤمن ببعضهم ونكفر ببعض. Alright, here Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is indeed those who disbelieve in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and His messengers. And they want by means of that disbelief to separate, make a distinction between Allah ta'ala and His prophets. That may mean number one, people say, I believe in a God but I don't believe in organized religion. I believe in God but I don't believe in prophets and books and scriptures, right? That may be one possibility here. Second may be that they're trying to cause a separation between Allah ta'ala and His prophets. In other words, saying we believe in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and ABC prophets but we don't believe in Sayyidina Rasulullah so they believe in some and they don't believe in others so what do they say how is it that they're trying to cause a schism between Allah Taala's messengers they're trying to say that we believe in some of them and we disbelieve in others so the Shant and Azul here is clearly that this is referring to both Jews and Christians Jews don't believe in Isa salam and Sayyidina Rasulullah but they claim to believe in Sayyidina Musa and all the previous prophets to him Christians are also guilty of the same thing, that they believe in the earlier prophets, but they don't believe in Sayyidina Rasulullah So this was a classic refrain of, this is the hakikat of all the Ahl Kitab. So here Allah Ta'ala is saying that, no. وَيُرِيدُونَ أَن يَتَّخِذُوا بَيْنَ ذَلِكَ سَبِيلًا And what is it that they want? They're trying to seek to adopt a path between this, between this thing. So what's going to happen? أُولَٰئِكَ هُمُ الْكَافِرُونَ حَقَّ so such people are disbelievers in reality. So this is that ayah that makes it clear that Ahl Kitab who don't accept Sayyidina Rasulullah Wasallam are referred to as disbelievers in the Qur'an. Right? That Ahl Kitab who Allah Ta'ala is acknowledging they believe in Allah is acknowledged that they believe in some of the Prophets. Right? So Allah Ta'ala is describing a person who is Ahl Kitab, who believes in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and believes in some of the prophets, but they say that we disbelieve in some of them. And I mentioned to you once before, Ba'ad in Arabic can also come for one. So when Nakfuru Biba'adhan can also mean that we disbelieve in one of them. Such a person is being labeled by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala himself in Quran, Ula'ikuhumul kafiruna haqqa. That indeed in all veracity, these are people who are disbelievers. So this is not atheists. These aren't atheists, right? But these are people who deny the nubuat and risalat of Sayyidina Rasulullah and they deny the Qur'an, وَعَتَدْنَا So we have prepared for such disbelievers an extremely humiliating punishment. But those who believe in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and believe in each and every one of the prophets and messengers that Allah ta'ala sent, and do not distinguish and separate out from anyone from amongst them for disbelief, these are the people that indeed soon Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will bestow to them and grant them and gift them their tremendous sawah. And indeed Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is all forgiving and all merciful. Next, Allah SWT is going to mention a demand that the Ahl Kitab had of the Prophet That if you do this, then we'll believe in you. Yes, Aluka Ahl Kitabi. That the Ahl Kitab are going to ask you, my beloved Messenger, Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, that literally you should bring to them or reveal to them a book from the sky. فَقَدْ سَأَلُوا مُوسَىٰ أَكْبَرَ مِنْ ذَلِكَ And don't worry my beloved Messenger Sallallahu Indeed these Ahl Kitab in their historic, their, their forefathers asked Sayyidina Musa أَكْبَرَ مِنْ ذَلِكَ Something even more than that. What did they say? فَقَالُوا And what had they said? أَلِنَ اللَّهُ جَهْرَةً That we want to see Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala openly manifest apparently. 
فَأَخَذَتْ هُمُ السَّائِقَةُ بِذُلْمِهِمْ And so then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala cast a thunderbolt or lightning or seized them with a bolt of lightning or a blast of thunder. Why? بِذُلْمِهِمْ Due to this injustice uh, and the, the injustice of this request that we will only believe in what they meant or that we will only believe in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. We won't believe in Him ghayb. We will only believe in Him when He manifests Himself clearly to us. Alright. Thumma, and then it's going to mention other things that the people of Sayyidina Muhammad did. We've done all of this in Surah Baqarah. Thumma takhadu al-ijla min ba'di ma ja'atuhum al-bayyinat. And then they took the, uh, what was that, the buffalo or ox, right? As an object of worship. Min ba'di ma no, they took the calf, this was the calf, they took the calf statue, the golden statue of a calf as an object of worship. After, after what? After Sayyidina Musa's bayyinat. This means can mean some people say the scripture that Sayyidina Musa Islam brought in the Torah. This also they say it means some of the miracles that Sayyidina Musa Islam brought in terms of his casting the staff and his having the arms that uh, when he put his hands in his armpits, his hands would come out glowing with light. But then Allah Ta'ala, as you saw in Surah Baqarah, amazing thing, فَأَفَوْنَا أَنْذَلِكَ But then we forgave them for all of that. وَأَتَيْنَا مُوسَى سُلْطَانٌ مُبِينًا And then we gave, bestowed upon Sayyidina Musa Islam the clear and manifest authority. This can also refer to when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala took Sayyidina Musa Islam to the Mount Tur and for the 30 days plus 10 days for 40 days sent upon him the last, the, the ultimate revelation that he sent. Now Allah ta'ala is going to refer to another incident that we also did earlier with you in Surah Baqarah. Right? But here, before I do this, I want to mention that in Surah Bani Israel, Surah number 17, verse 93, the same thing that the Ahl Kitab are asking of the Prophet here, that you should bring down some revelation that is manifest and tangible, the Mushrikeen of Makkah make the same request. And this was about Miraj, and they said that we will never believe in your ascension unless you reveal to us a book that we may read. In other words, they wanted something tangible. They didn't want this verbal revelation. That say, no, they didn't want tilawati ayat. That say, no, Susam is reciting ayat and katibin wahi sahaba writing. They said, bring us a book, an, ob- an actual hard copy that has been revealed from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. That's what they said. And similarly in Surah Al-An'am, which is coming, Surah number 6, verse 7, Allah ta'ala tells them, oh, sorry, Allah ta'ala tells the Prophet that were we to reveal you a book on paper, that they can touch with their own hands, those who disbelieve still won't believe, they will say that this is just magic. So they're not going to believe anyway. So this shows the insincerity of their wish. Alright. This issue of the Bani Israel asking to see Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, there's also a nukta there that the ru'yat of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is so amazing and so incredible that all of the world is not sufficient to be a zarf for that. All of the world could not contain that. Only and only Jannah is something which can contain this event that could be the locus or the mahal for such an event of the royat of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Because number one, Jannah is a place of purity. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala's beatific vision is not something that is befitting to a place of impurity such as this world. Secondly, because the Jannah is a place of pure people. So Allah Ta'ala's beatific vision is not befitting a community except a community of people in Jannah, community who are pure. Third is that because Jannah is a place of the manifestation of the Ridwan or the pleasure of Allah Subhanahu Wa Ta'ala and actually uh, enabling humanity 
or bestowing upon humanity, any section of or member of that humanity, his ru'ya, is actually in manifestation of his ultimate pleasure. And that ultimate pleasure will only be manifested to any human or group of human beings inside of Jannah. Alright? And you would remember that even when Sayyidina Musa Islam made this request, that he wanted to see Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala sent one tajalli of his and the entire mountain was crushed and Sayyidina Musa was temporarily blind and dazzled, dazzled by that light. And that was just one tajalli of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. What does that mean? That was just one drop of the powers that Allah ta'ala emanates and sends onto this world. And even that was enough, too much, for the mountain or the Nabi of the time to handle. Alright. So all of this, uh, all of these things we have done earlier in Surah Baqarah. So this was that incident that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala took the mountain of Thur and brought it over them. Right? This I think I may have skipped this with you earlier. Well, this mention was in Surah Baqarah and it's going to come again in Surah Araf for that matter. But I don't think I discussed the details with you over there. So what happens was Masayna Musa went to get that revelation. And in his absence, they started worshipping the gold statue of the calf. So when he came back, he admonished them. And he said, one of the things he told them was, look, I only left you to go get revelation. So they also protested and said, how do we know you're getting revelation? So then he said, okay, I'll take 70 of you with me. And you can go back with me to the mountain. So when he took 70 with them back to the mountain, and there they repented to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, because they heard kalamullah. But the next one, when he took them back to the mountain of Tur, then Allah SWT, when he sent the next revelation on Sayyidina Musa Islam, these 70 were allowed to hear it. When they heard it, then they made tawbah to Allah SWT that they had, you know, they had wrongfully mis, they wrongfully mistrusted or they wrongfully had lack of faith in Sayyidina Musa Islam. Alright. وَكُلْنَا لَهُمُ ادْخُلُوا الْبَابَ سُجَّدًا وَكُلْنَا لَهُمْ لَا تَعْدُوا فِي السَّبْتِ وَأَخَذْنَا مِنْهُمْ مِثَاقًا غَلِيظًا All of these things are referring to things that happened earlier, uh, things that we've mentioned in Surah Baqarah, right? That they were told to enter into that town, the doors of the town, the state of Sarda. Instead they walked in upright. They were told that they shouldn't violate and transgress the manners of the Sabbath. They instead cast their nets and went fishing on that day, right? All of these things have been done. فَبِمَا نَقْذِهِمْ مِثَاقُهُمْ And due to their breaking of their covenant, وَكُفْرِهِمْ بِآيَاتِ اللَّهِ And their disbelieving in the verses of revelation from Allah SWT. And also due to what? وَقَتْلِهِمُ الْأَنْبِيَاءِ بِغَيْرِ حَقٍ And due to their killing and murdering of the prophets unjustly. وَقَوْلِهِمْ كُلُوبُنَا غُلْف We also did this in Surah Baqarah. They said that no, we don't believe because our hearts are veiled. So due to their saying that, بَلْ All of this, the consequence of that was what? That in fact Allah subhanahu wa set a seal on their hearts. Bikufrihim bagan for sabab. Due to the sabab, due to the cause, what caused that to happen, their disbelief in all of the different ways and acts that we have mentioned, their acts of disbelief. And thereafter none of them will ever ever believe except a very small number. This we also explained to you as well. The exact same ayat, the exact same words have come earlier. وَبِكُفْرِهِمْ وَقَوْلِهِمْ عَلَى مَرْيَمَ Now this is one new thing. Now this is one the first new thing that's coming now about Bani Israel now in Surah Nisa. Another thing they did, and this you can, Allah Ta'ala is explaining now because we've done the story of Sayyidat Maryam yesterday or the day before. Another thing they did was their disbelief in 
the immaculate conception of Sayyidina Isa alayhi salam. And therefore binding buhtan and slandering and accusing Sayyidina Maryam radiyatana of uh, immodesty and unchastity and uh, of some grave sin. Adhima, some grave buhtan that they put upon her. Bukawlihim. In, and then, another thing that they did. Inna katalna mis. Uh, okay, I did this ayah for you before. Wakolehim inna katalna masiha Isa ibn Maryama, and they're saying that indeed we have killed Sayyidina Isa alayhi salam, Rasulullah, the Messenger of Allah subhanahu wa taala. Here, the Mufassirin mentioned two things: either that they knowingly killed him, meaning knowing that he was a prophet of Allah subhanahu wa taala, as they before killed Anbiya. Or second, they say that they killed him because they didn't believe him to be a prophet. And here Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is replying to them by Allah ta'ala saying the words, Rasulullah that he indeed was a prophet. This is the part which and Allah ta'ala is saying, and never, never, no way did they kill Sayyidina Salaam. And no way, in any way did they crucify him. But however, there was a likeness of Isa that was made to resemble him. And that person who was given that resemblance and likeness and physical appearance is that human being that was crucified and killed. And indeed, those who disagree about this issue, they're in a shak and in doubt concerning him. Now this means, two, this means several things. Number one, it means that at that moment they were... There was doubt as to the person who they were crucifying and killing. Second, it means that afterwards, it's possible some comes that afterwards they realized that they actually the person who they crucified and killed wasn't saying Islam and they were milling about and confusing. Third thing the commentators say, but this can also mean, is that late any time in life, even if it's somebody today, has some shuck in this issue or differs concerning this issue, that whether Sayyidina Islam is alive or not, this ayah is also including them. Ma'aluhum bihi min ilmin. They have no knowledge whatsoever about what they did and who they crucified or who they killed. Illa tiba The only thing they can do is follow their fanciful ideas and speculations. They don't really know for sure. But this much Allah Ta'ala says, وَمَا قَتَلُوهُ yakina. Absolute certainty that they did not kill Sayyidina Isa alayhi salam. Bal, this is the ayah I did for you I think earlier. Bal rafa'ahu Allahu ilayhi. But instead, Allah subhanahu wa raised him up to him. This ayah clearly establishes that Sayyidina Isa is alive and was raised up by Allah subhanahu wa alive. And that's why he was there on the, I think, fourth or fifth level of Jannah when Sayyidina Rasulullah went on the Miraj, right? And he met Sayyidina Rasulullah in that state. He is alive. And Allah ta'ala azizan. That Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala almighty is capable of eating any and every such thing, hakiman, and He exercises that might and power out of His wisdom. So he, Allah ta'ala is powerful enough, absolutely powerful enough and capable enough of taking Isa up as a living person. And Allah ta'ala has done that in His absolute wisdom. So it means that Allah ta'ala is suggesting in Qur'an that anybody who is denied that Sayyidina Isa has been raised up, that is unfortunately Mr. Ghamdi has denied this. They are actually denying that power of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and they're denying the wisdom of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Because Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is referring to this act of raising up Isa alayhi salam as an example of the fact that he is aliman hakima. Alright. وَإِمِّنْ أَهْلِ الْكِتَابِ إِلَّا لَيُؤْمِنَنَّ بِهِ قَبْلَ مَوْتِهِ Alright. Now Allah ta'ala is saying is that there is no single member of Ahl-i Kitab other than they will certainly, surely have Iman 
on Sayyidina Isa alayhi salam before Isa alayhi salam passes away. So number one, this suggests that Sayyidina Islam has not passed away yet. It suggests that later when Sayyidina Isa alayhi comes back, they will all have iman in him. Now whether they follow him or not is something separate. But they will believe and know that he is Sayyidina Isa alayhi who has come back. They will know that and they will believe in him. Okay? وَيَوْمَ الْقِيَامَةِ يَكُونُ عَلَيْهِمْ shahida, And on the Day of Judgment, Sayyidina Isa alayhi salam will bear witness and will testify. He will be a witness against them. Alayhim means against the Ahli Kitab. So all of this is, all of this is strengthening more uh, and Allah Ta'ala making absolutely clearly explicit that Sayyidina Isa alayhi salam will return again. Alright, now some commentators have mentioned several things which I've marked up and I wanted to share with you. What exactly happened? There are lots of views in the tafsir literature about what exactly happened. First view is that when they, those unbelievers from the Ahl Kitab, and by the way this is clear that this is the Jews. And it's clear in the Quran that this is the Jews who conspired to kill Sayyidina Isa and it's clear in Christian scriptures. And this is one of the things that the, Jew, the contemporary Jews are always trying to get people to forget and not mention and not talk about. So much so they view it as an illiberal affront to them to suggest that the Jews tried to kill Jesus. They don't like it when people say that. Right? But there's no doubt whatsoever and all of early classical, you know, in those pre-postmodern secular world Christian theology, all also openly said clearly that the Jews were the ones who killed Sayyidina Isa. Because they believed that he was killed, right? Uh, to, as an expiation for humanity's sins. And they have a whole other theology that they derive from this act of crucifixion, right? But the point is that they say that it was the Jews who did that. So, number one, is that Sayyidina uh, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala sent the angel Jibreel Islam to raise Sayyidina Isa alayhi salam up to him. Alright. Then what happened is that the first Jew who came to take Sayyidina Isa alayhi salam to this act of murder, right? Who came to pick him up, to be taken, to be publicly crucified and thereby killed. That first Jew who came, Allah Ta'ala transformed him into the likeness of Sayyidina Isa alayhi salam. And when that fellow didn't come back, the others were wondering, so they sent another one. When they sent another one, they found him. Right? And he was yelping and wailing and saying, I'm not Isa, I'm not Isa, but he looked just like him. And they thought to look at this, you know, they thought, Naudhu that Sayyidina Isa was being cowardly and trying to pretend that he wasn't who he was to get out of being crucified and killed. Here, Sayyidina Wahab ibn Munabba, who, who is a very important Sahaba, because he was a former Christian who accepted deen of Islam. Alright? So he relates that when the Jews came to assassinate Sayyidina Isa that Sayyidina Isa was present with 70 of his Sahaba. There were 70. He had how many true followers? 70. These were the Hawariyin. We did them earlier. Okay. So in that case what happened is that according to Sayyidina Mabin Abba, Allah Ta'ala made all 70 of them the Shiba, made all 70 of them look like Sayyidina Isa So you had 71 individuals in a room who all looked exactly alike. Then Sayyidina Isa Islam, so then the Jews said that they thought that Isa Islam had done some magic and then they swore to kill all of them. Then the Jews said, well, kill all 71. At that point then Sayyidina Islam turned to his Hawarin and asked them that which one of you is willing to step forth and sacrifice his life for me. 
So then one of them stepped forth and sacrificed his life. So he said that, no, I'm the real Isa, and these are just, you know, this is my magic, right? And so the Jews took him away, and they killed him. And this is the view also of two very famous Tabi'in Mufassirin, Sayyidina Qatada and Mujahid, Rahimahullahu Ta'ala, they've also taken this view. Another view is that Sayyidina Isa, that there was, amongst the Hawari'een, there was one Munafik at that moment, in that gathering. There was one actually hypocritical believer in Sayyidina Isa So what did he do? Sorry, not at that moment, separate thing, but there was a Munafik. So what did that Munafik do? That he went to the Jews and he said, okay, you want to catch Isa you want to crucify him, you want to kill him, I'll take you to where he is living, right? And you can capture him and then crucify him and kill him. So he took him to the house and then he said, okay, I'll go inside, right? Because he thinks me to be his companion, he'll let me in. So he went inside. At that point, Allah Ta'ala took Sayyidina Isa up and made him look like Sayyidina Isa. Now he didn't come out, so these Jews were waiting, and then they went in, and they went in and they found him, but now he looked like Sayyidina Isa So they took him away, and then they again crucified and killed that person. Some say, yet another view, this is uh, whatever number of view it is, that there was the Jews had put Sayyidina Isa under, you can say, house arrest. And they had appointed a guard to stand at the house arrest. For some reason, at some point, the guard went inside. Maybe Sayyidina Islam called him. Maybe he went to check on him. At that moment, Allah Ta'ala raised up Sayyidina Islam and then converted this guard's appearance to the likeness of Sayyidina Islam. So when the Jews came, they saw this person. So they ended up crucifying and killing the guard. Some... I don't know how I would call this, but some sort of revisionist Christian scholarship also has a lot of interesting views on this incident. Alright? Here, uh, you know, that's all we'll say about this. Alright? So this has been mentioned. We did a little bit about this in Surah Ali Imran earlier. Uh, and uh, this I've also mentioned to you that every individual will, of the Ahlul Kitab, will believe in Sayyidina Isa alayhi salam when he comes back again. Alright? So that is why according to ulama of Ahlul Sunnah and Jama'at, the fact that Sayyidina Isa is alive, that he was raised up by Allah Subhanahu to him, and that he will come back again onto this earth, and there will be some circumstances in this earth where then obviously clearly all of humanity will know him. For all the Ahlul Kitab to have Iman in him means they will all know him, and that's because he's going to lead a very public battle, and victorious battle against the Jal. So to believe all of this is part of Qur'an. Right? And a person who doesn't believe that Sayyidina Isa is alive, it is as if they have disbelieved in Allah's words in Qur'an. Alright. Now what happens is Allah is saying that the Jews here, because of their sins, and we did this few before, because of their sins, Allah has made haram upon them. Certain pure things that originally had been made pure for them had been made permissible for them. وَبِسَدِّهِمْ عَنْ سِبِيلِ اللَّهِ And by means of their preventing people from the path of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala or preventing many people from the path of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and by their taking of riba وَأَغْزِهِمْ riba. This is another thing that clearly in the Jewish scriptures it was also prohibited to take interest. Now that's fascinating. Uh, and I've heard, I've not looked at it myself but I've heard people say that even the present day version of Torah whatever they read even that also says that you shouldn't take interest. Now... Goldman Sachs and Lehman Brothers and all these 
big, I don't know, whatever number they are, they're all actually founded and have been continually run successively without interruption by people from Jewish descent and Jewish background. Allahu alam, whether they're atheist or believing Jews, right? Uh, but uh, this is the fascinating thing. So Allah Ta'ala is saying that this was another reason why Allah Ta'ala punished them for due to their taking of riba. This is something new. This wasn't, they hadn't come earlier. Makadnuhu anhu, and indeed we had, indeed they had been forbidden from riba. Waqlihim amwala nasi bil and they used to consume and partake of people's wealth based on falsehood. So this is referring to yet a separate thing. Some say this is the tafsil of this, that they took riba, that's the means of falsehood. Others say that they swindled people out of their money, right, due to some other means of false deceit and deception. And so those who didn't make tawbah and died on disbelief, Allah Ta'ala says that we prepared for them an extremely painful punishment. Okay, here we made a point for you on this. This is an interesting point. First, You did this before, when we did this ayah in Quran, so Baqarah about those of the ummah who are extremely deep in knowledge, they also say about the mutashabihat amanna that we just believe in them. Here Allah Ta'ala is suggesting that minhum means from the Jews, so they also had arrasukhuna fil ilm. So this establishes that in previous religions as well as in the Islamic religion, the Quran is mentioning that there will always be a scholastic class. There will be a class of scholars. There will be scholasticism. And scholasticism is a pre-Islamic feature and it is an Islamic feature. And scholasticism is what leads a person to truth because who is going to understand the truth from the Jews? And the scholastics from amongst the Jews, and the believers from the believers, they're the ones who believe in what was revealed to Sayyidina Rasulullah. So who were those Khalil, right? We had done this a bit earlier. Who are those few people from the Jews who are going to believe? It was their arasikhuna fil ilm. And when you read the stories of those Sahaba, who are few in number, but who are converted from Judaism to Islam, you will see that they were the scholars of Judaism. So this is a notion that the insight, and that insight that will lead a person to salvation, lies with the scholastic community. All right? And they believe in what was revealed before you. And they are firmly established on their prayer. And they offer their zakat. And they believe in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and the last day. Indeed, those are the people who Allah ta'ala will surely soon give a tremendous and immense reward. That indeed, okay, let's take a break here actually. Because it's already four and we have to leave you at five sharp today. So we'll take a break over here in verse number 163. Okay, Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. Surah Nisa, Surah number 4, verse number 163. Allah subhanahu wa that indeed we revealed upon you, beloved Messenger sallam, in the same manner and same fashion, with the same veracity, with the same power, with the same absolute truth and conviction and certainty that we sent our revelations upon Sayyidina Nuh alayhi salam, number one, and Nabiyyin min ba'dihi, and on many, many of the prophets who were after him. And we sent down a revelation onto Ibrahim alayhi salam, Ismail alayhi salam, Ishaq alayhi salam, Yaqub alayhi salam, wa Asbat. I've already mentioned that you're the progeny of Yaqub alayhi salam. Wa Isa wa Ayyuba wa Yunus wa Haruna wa Suleiman alayhi salam ajma'een. 
Watena Dawood Zabura, and indeed we bestowed upon Dawood Laysam the Psalm. Zabura is the name of a particular scripture and a particular book of revelation that was given to him. Burusulan kan kasas nahum aleka min kablu burusulan lam naksusum aleik. And indeed, there are many, many messengers that we have told you about their stories and related their incidents and told, informed you about them that came before you. Burusulan lam naksusum aleik. And there are many, many prophets that we have not told you. Even this is Nabi Akrim, so aleik is you singular, right? This is one thing that you know you need to, the English doesn't capture this. Aleikum and aleika is both going to be you. So here it's clear that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is mentioning in Qur'an that even Sayyidina Rasulullah sallallahu does not know about certain prophets who have existed in the past. Because Allah ta'ala is saying in Qur'an that there are certain prophets that we have not related any information or incidents or stories about them to you, Prophet sallallahu taklima, And indeed Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala then chose to address his speech and manifest kalam to Sayyidina Musa salam. Now in this, uh, these two ayat you have the mention of many many anbiya. There are 25 anbiya that are mentioned in Qur'an al-Kareem in total. 25 anbiya that are mentioned in Qur'an al-Kareem in total. First thing I will say here, the notable, um, the notable absence is Sayyidina Adam salam. Okay? Sayyidina Adam salam is definitely a Nabi. But because he was a Nabi first and foremost to his Original children, which I had mentioned to you earlier, was 20 men and 20 women. So it's extremely small community. Extremely small community. And most of the Mufassirin suggest that between Sayyidina Adam salam and Sayyidina Nuh salam, there was no other Prophet. But when Sayyidina Nuh salam was a Prophet, then you had the sequence of one after the other, after the other, after the many, many times as I've highlighted to you, multiple Prophets existing at a single time. Sometimes they even say it could be hundreds of prophets existing at a single time. But it's also important to show that there are prophets that have not been told about. If you relate this with other ayat of Quran, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says that no community is punished until they receive a clear messenger. So what you find in Quran is mention of one type of prophet and messenger. And you find absence of another type. Number one feature, the type of prophets and messengers that are mentioned in Qur'an are those that were given the most important scriptural revelations. And they're sometimes referred to as Ulul Azm and Biyan, that's also coming in Qur'an. What's missing? And there are mention of some prophets who have been given non-scriptural revelations as well, but what's missing is the names of all of those other prophets, for example, all those Anbiya that the Jews killed, right? Who didn't bring any additional revelations, but were just simply guiding people to the same scriptural revelation, the same kitab, right? That was sent unto Sayyidina Musa Islam. Second thing that many people who study history would note in Quran, and many people ask this question, that it seems that the Quran is pretty much only mentioning people who existed in what we would call the Mediterranean, right? And is the Mediterranean, this is a field in Western universities as well, Mediterranean studies, and is the Mediterranean or the Middle East or however you want to call it, the cradle of all human civilization. Well, yes, the Quran seems to be establishing that, that in terms of spiritually speaking, it is the cradle of all 
spiritual aspects of human civilization and the ultimate cradle of that is Baytullah Kaaba I did that for you before and the ultimate messenger is therefore Sayyidina Rasulullah because another thing you find is that after Sayyidina Ibrahim made that dua no other prophet was actually going to Kaaba and establishing ibadah on the Kaaba it's Sayyidina Rasulullah and him alone who is a response to that dua of Sayyidina Ibrahim but because Sayyidina Adam Laysam made Kaaba, Sayyidina Nuh Laysam remade the Kaaba, then Sayyidina Ibrahim Laysam remade the Kaaba, then Sayyidina Rasulullah Laysam remade the Kaaba. So these four points make Kaaba the center of all spirituality in human history. So the Islamic understanding of why this is the cradle is because the Kaaba was there. And when you spread spirally outward from the Kaaba, then you start including Palestine and Mesopotamia and these other areas where all of these named prophets are universally held to have lived and taught. So who are the other prophets that aren't being mentioned then? Those are prophets who were spreading the message of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in the more far corners of this earth. Such as who were the prophets sent to the Chinese community, not mentioned over here. Who were the prophets sent to Latin America, South America, not mentioned over here. Who were the prophets who were going and teaching humans who were living in Australia, calling and telling not mentioned over here. So those are the ones who aren't mentioned. Suggestion seems to be, but this is tafsir, this is not known for certain. But suggestion seems to be that those prophets were also following the scriptures of some prophet that was sent prior to them in this cradle of civilization known as the Middle East. Then sometimes, many times, students ask a question that, well, what does Islam say about Confucius or Tao or I don't know. There are many, many names like that. Or if you go to the Aztecs and Inca and Mayan civilizations, so they have certain names. So again, this is not a guaranteed fact and not necessary to believe in this, but many Muslim scholars feel that actually just the way the Christians deified Sayyidina Isa that previous communities deified their prophets, and actually so the Aztec gods are actually the names of prophets that Allah subhanahu wa sent to them, and they ended up deifying them. And so much so that some Muslim scholars suggest that this may be, it's not exactly, but something like this is the case, right? And something like this is the case as far as the Hindu gods as well. So for example, perhaps, Ram was actually the name of a prophet sent by Allah subhanahu wa to that human civilization in India, but they corrupted the prophetic teachings after that prophet passed away, so much so that they ended up deifying him, they ended up viewing him as a god. And same may be true of Krishna or other names, Vishnu and all these other names that appear. And similarly then they would suggest the same thing about Confucius, right? And some of them even will suggest it about Plato or Socrates. Allahu Alam, Allah knows best. But our iman in that when we were told to believe in all the prophets is number one, that Allah Ta'ala has sent prophets to every human community. Now that prophecy may last them for a few years, it may last them for a few generations. It doesn't mean everybody always had a living prophet amongst them. But they always had, every human community had knowledge of prophecy within them. Whenever that knowledge faded entirely, then Allah Ta'ala would send another prophet to them. And then again, that knowledge would remain, maybe partially corrupted, but would still remain. And then when it faded entirely, then Allah Ta'ala would send another prophet to them. So this is global history. It's not just the Islamic view of what happened in Palestine and Bethlehem and Jericho and Makkah Makarma. No, this is global history. But those seem to be the ones that aren't mentioned.
So there seems to be an azma to these prophets that did come in what they're so called, uh, in English what they call the Millet Ibrahim, the Abrahamic tradition. Right? Okay. Another thing you will notice in this ayah is that Sayyidina Adam, so I did that Sayyidina Adam, as I mentioned, another thing you notice in this ayah is that there's no particular order. I mean, if I was to go back, the order is not chronological, you see, because after Sayyidina wa Isa, wa Ayyub, wa Yunus, so these Sayyidina Ayyub, were before Sayyidina Isa, right? So there doesn't seem to be any particular chronological order here. Here, I'm sure uh, that the Mufassirun have, may have commented on possible nukat, possible ma'arif, you know, possible points of interest and points of wonder as to why Allah Ta'ala chose this particular sequence. But interesting to see. And then here you see now for the first time you have mentioned of Sayyidina Dawud al-Islam. So because he's being mentioned, some of the others are also, some of the other Anbiya al-Islam are also being mentioned for the first time. But Sayyidina Dawud al-Islam is being mentioned for the first time. And so here specific mention of the name of his text is being revealed. Alright, then I was telling you that besides the Anbiya mentioned in this verse, there are other Anbiya. So some will be mentioned in Surah Anam, Surah number 6, verses 84 to 86, such as some names that aren't here, Sayyidina Yusuf al-Islam, for example. His name isn't in this passage, right? Sayyidina Zakariya al-Islam, we had him earlier, but he's not mentioned in this list. Sayyidina Yahya al-Islam, we had him earlier, not mentioned in this list. Sayyidina Ilyas al-Islam, Ghalibah not mentioned earlier, but mentioned in Surah Anam. Sayyidina Yas'a, Sayyidina Lut salam. Right? Then in addition to Surah 6 verses 84 86, Surah Maryam and Surah Anbiya will make mention of another Prophet, Sayyidina Idris salam. And Surah Anbiya also mentions Sayyidina Zulkifal. And then you have Sayyidina Hud, Sayyidina Saleh and Sayyidina Shu'ib. They are mentioned in Surah Araf and Surah Hud and Surah Shu'ara. So the total then that you get from the Prophets that are mentioned in Quran is 25. 25. But in Hadith, Sayyidina Rasulullah is mentioned that there were 124, some say 120,000, and some narrations say 124,000 prophets, of which 313 are called messengers. So this is the word Nabi and Rasul. That number one is that sometimes these words are used synonymously and interchangeably. Fine. Second, sometimes these words are used with indifference and nuance. And the difference is, is that a Rasul is that Prophet who receives scriptural revelation from Allah subhanahu wa receives the kitab. And then when a Nabi, is, the word Nabi is being said in contrast with Rasul, it means a Nabi who receives wahi from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, but is following in his tabi to the kitab of another Rasul. So the perfect example for you to understand of this is Sayyidina Musa and Sayyidina Harun alayhislam. To Sayyidina Musa is a Rasul because he is the one who is getting the kalam of Allah. And Sayyidina Harun is a Nabi, but he is not getting some separate scripture. He is also guiding people to follow the revealed scripture, kitab that was revealed to Sayyidina Musa. Important to know that that's why the Quran says that Sayyidina Musa Khatam al that's a stronger statement that not only is he the last Rasul, but there will not be any person who will ever be a quote-unquote shadow prophet or he's going to claim to be a prophet but say, I just teach Quran, I'm a Nabi, not a Rasul. Right? That is also impossible. Sayyidina Rasulullah is the last and final Rasul, but also and equally the last and final Nabi. All wahi of any, all wahi of that, which means divine to prophet, all wahi is closed when Sayyidina Rasulullah passed away. Alright. 
Next in Allah mentions, رُسُلًا مُبَشِّرِينَ وَمُنذِرِينَ So what do the Anbiya do? So these Anbiya, what do they do? They spread glad tidings for those who believe that they should know that there's an Allah sponsor who's prepared a Jannah for you, right? How sad would a human being if they know that? Like imagine a student who's studying and doesn't know there's something called a degree they get at the end. <laughs> right? So they need to know that there's an outcome, there's an end. And Munzirin, and they also warn, they also warn people that there's also a possible negative outcome. There can also be a bad ending, there can be a good ending, and there can be a bad ending. Now what does it mean about the Rusul? That after Allah Ta'ala, so literally it means that Allah Subhanahu Ta'ala has all the prophets and messengers do this, bring glad tidings and warn to all communities, so that there will not be no human being or humanity itself will not have any hujjah against Allah Subhanahu Ta'ala, will not be able to establish any warrant or proof against Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that we were never, how can you expect us to have been guided when no guidance was sent to us? Alright? But the Rusul, so it means after, so this is the, these ayats are stressing the importance of belief and prophecy. So those people who say that we believe in God but we don't believe in organized religion, prophets and books, that's a totally different God concept. That's completely different from the Quranic God concept. The Quranic God concept is saying that it's Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is al-hadi, he's that being who guides. And he ultimately and exclusively guides through prophets and messengers. Makanallahu aziz and hakima. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is almighty, all wise. Means Allah ta'ala is almighty that he could have chosen any nizam of hidayah that he wanted. Hakima, he is all wise. And this particular way of guiding humanity through successive prophets and revelations and culminating in the last prophet and the last revelation is hakima, is the manifestation of his wisdom. Right? Okay. This is the answer to people. I say, well, why didn't Allah Ta'ala do it this way? And why didn't Allah Ta'ala do it that way? And why couldn't every one of us have our own personal Nabi? And I mean, San Sushna Praja, people think of all types of things. Allah Ta'ala is saying, He is Hakim. He is Hakim. This system is the wisest system. And it embodies the wisdom of Allah Subhanahu Wa Ta'ala. لَكِنَ اللَّهُ يَشْدُ بِمَا أَنزَلَ إِلَيْكَ Allahu Akbar. Now, after sending all of these prophets and messengers and mentioning... And after sending them, but after, I should say, after mentioning in Quran, after Allah Ta'ala mentioning in Quran that He sends all of these prophets and messengers, what does Allah Subhanahu Ta'ala say in Quran? That Allah Ta'ala says that He, however, Allah Subhanahu Ta'ala Himself, yashadu bima anzala ilayk. Allah Ta'ala personally bears witness and testifies to that which has been revealed to you, Sayyidina Rasulullah Wasallam means Quran. Anzalahu bi ilmihi, and that has been sent down by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala bi according to his ilm, according to his knowledge. Wal malaikatu yashhadun, and even the angels are witnessing this Quran being revealed to you. However, wa kafa billahi shahida, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is sufficient as a witness. The angels are witnessing for their own fun. The angels witnessing doesn't increase the hujiyat of Quran in any way. Right? Angels witnessing doesn't include the increased authority or authority or intensity in Quran anyway. In the Ladina Kafaru. So now, after showing what Iman is, the feeling you're supposed to get is indeed disbelieving, and this is tremendous. Disbelieving in that Quran that Allah Ta'ala Himself has sent down according to His ilm. Disbelieving in that Quran that Allah Ta'ala Himself is a witness over and that He is sufficient as a witness. Then wasaddu an sabilillah and then preventing people from accepting that deen and that Prophet that that the Quran is talking about. Then indeed, then such disbelievers have indeed gone astray, a wide and manifest going astray. 
That indeed those who disbelieve and those who are unjust and oppressed, it does not befit and never ever will Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala forgive them. And never will Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala guide them tariqan to the path. Illa tariqa jahannama khaladina fiha abda. Other than, however, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala may guide them further on the path that they've chosen to opt and may guide them further and swifter and deeper into the fires of jahannam and they will dwell therein for all of eternity. Wakana dalaka alallahi yasira. And making them dwell therein is extremely easy for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. But what it means here, what it means here, and this may be a bit too intense for some of you, but what it means is that putting an unbeliever in Jahannam for all of eternity due to their kufr is a very light matter for Allah SWT. What does that mean? It means that they are absolutely deserving of it. It means that it's not against Allah Ta'ala's compassion. Allah Ta'ala's Ar-Rahman Ar-Rahim. But as far as these people go, it's completely easy, despite him being Rahman and Rahim. Now what does it mean? So for example, if a person is compassionate, let's say how we call human compassion, and they, even they look at the murderer in the eye and they sentence him to jail in, for life. But as the murderer is walking out, they may think that, wow, you know, that guy is actually going to spend the next 50 years of his life in a 10 by 10 room. And even though they know he's guilty of murder, and even the judge knows that, and even the judge sentences him to that, right? Most the way secular liberalism has trained us is that we are going to presume that even the judge may think, that, wow, that's a pretty heavy thing I just did, right? That I've sentenced that person to heavy, heavy, lies heavy on the judge, right? Allah Ta'ala's compassion is combined with His justice, right? So when Allah Ta'ala sends a disbeliever to Jahannam for all of eternity, it's not heavy, it doesn't weigh heavily in that sense. I'm using human words, right? It doesn't weigh heavily on Allah Ta'ala. It's very light, it's very easy. Because that person is so deserving of that. Because they disbelieved in Allah subhanahu wa In other words, what I'm trying to highlight for us is the magnitude of kufr. The magnitude of kufr is so great that even Allah subhanahu who is infinitely, limitlessly Rahman and Rahim does not bat an eye, so to speak, at sending a kufr, a kafir to Jahannam for all of eternity. That's what it means here. Allahu Akbar. That's what it means here. Bakana Zalika Allahi Yasira. It was a very intense thing. Intense. Ya Yuhannas. Now here Allah Ta'ala is showing that this message of prophethood and prophecy is for all of humanity. Oh insan, all of humanity. Kaja akumur Rasul. Not not Rasul. That indeed has come to you all of Al Rasul, the Messenger. Means Sayyidina Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam bilhaqi min rabbikum with absolute truth from your Rabb. He's your Rabb and he's your Prophet. I mean Allah Ta'ala is saying that I am your Rabb and he is your Prophet. And this is for all of humanity. فَآمِنُوا خَيْرًا لَكُمْ So if you were to believe in the Prophet ﷺ, that would be better for you. وَإِن تَكْفُرُوا And if you disbelieve in the Prophet ﷺ, then know فَإِنَّ لِلَّهِ that to Allah SWT belongs each and everything that lies above and that which lies on the earth. Indeed, Allah SWT is all-knowing, all-wise. means that if you believe, it's better for you. And if you don't disbelieve, it doesn't harm Allah Ta'ala in any way. Right? Ya Ahl Kitabi, La taglu fi dinikum. Oh, people of the book, don't engage in ghulu. 
Alright. Ghulu here means that Okay, one thing I had written there that I wanted to show you also. This Saddu and Sabilullah. Right? So what are the two things Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala mentioned over there? That those who disbelieve and Wasaddu an Sabilillah. So verse number 167. This is also a problem that you have atheists who not only do the truth to disbelieve in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, but they want to spread atheism. They're da'is for da'is. They're doing da'wah of atheism. It's not just that they don't want to pray, they don't want you to pray. You may find a non-practicing Muslim who actually, it's not enough that they don't practice, they actually will sometimes try to get you not to practice. Whatever it may be. Whether it's a farz, it's a wajib, it's a sunnah, something outward, it's something inward. So this act of not believing or not practicing is itself a great grave sin. But second, Allah Ta'ala makes mustaqil, dedicated mention of that act of that person who tries to stop others from believing, to stop others from practicing. That's also a grave sin that Allah Ta'ala has put at, together at a par with kufr. That they disbelieve and they stop people from the path of Allah. So then not, some of us may reflect that, okay, we may not be disbelievers, but have, have we ever stopped somebody from the path of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala? And you, unfortunately you find this a lot. You know, people want, want to stop you. And sometimes they want to stop you even from superficial things. They want to stop you from having a beard, stop you from doing hijab, stop you from doing niqab. Even they want to stop you from that. Uh, what difference does it make to them, right? What difference does it make to any other human being how another human being looks, right? It, should, it shouldn't make any difference to them at all. It's not shouldn't cause any problem for them at all. But they want to stop you from it. Okay, let's say you say you don't want to watch certain movies or watch movies or listen to music or watch TV or go to mixed gatherings. What difference does it make to them, right? Even according to the principles of secular liberalism, there's live and let live. No, they want to stop you from that. They want to stop you from what you want to do. They want to stop you from what you consider to be the path of Allah. Okay, they may not consider it to be the path of Allah, but they're stopping you knowing that knowing that you consider it to be Allah's path. That's a grave thing to do. Right? You see, they're stopping you knowing that you consider it to be the path of Allah. How could you do that? Right? How could you do that? It's a very grave sin. Right? So that is also something that a lot of us uh, have experienced that unfortunately the people in uh, our society are engaged in that as well. This issue, La Ahla Kitab La Taglu. Taglu comes from ghulu fi dinikum. Do not go to excesses and extremes in your deen. So the first thing that is being mentioned over here is that uh, what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is going to mention in these ayat is the saying of the Christians where they said Sayyidina Isa was the son of Allah. Allah ta'ala is saying that don't go to extremes in your love for Sayyidina Isa that you ascribe divinity to him. Again, there may be some Muslims who could be guilty of the same thing. They shouldn't go to such extremes in the love of Sayyidina Rasulullah Wasallam that they ascribe divinity to him. They shouldn't go to such extremes to their love for awliyaullah that they ascribe divinity to them. Right? That they ascribe divinity to them. So, do not go to excesses and extremes in your deen. So, by the way, extreme here doesn't mean, you know, there are certain extremes that are part of deen. That's called like extreme taqwa. That's not an extreme. <laughs> right? By the ghulu means I shouldn't use the word extreme. It means don't transgress, don't go beyond what you're supposed to do, go outside the limits. 
That's what it means, right? Okay. And don't say concerning Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala anything other than the truth. Indeed know that Sayyidina Isa salam, the Messiah, is Rasulullah, is the messenger of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Wa kalimatuhu. And I'll explain that in a moment. That this is kalima. There are few views of Mufassirin on that as well. Al-Qaha illa Maryam, that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala cast that kalima. Alright? Here this is why you must really see how you need to, I mean how Arabic will help you. Al-Qaha to ha that zamir is mu'annath. So those of you know, kalima has the ta, ta'itanith on it. So al-Qaha is not referring to anything else previously, it's referring to that kalima. So what does it mean? Literally means that Sayyidina Isa is the messenger of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and Allah's word. Allah Ta'ala cast His word to Maryam, anha, wa ruhum minhu. Okay, now ruhum minhu means, now, those again, if you know Arabic, you see that ruh is rafa. The ruhun cannot be ila Maryam. It wouldn't be that Allah Ta'ala cast the word to Maryam and to the Holy Ghost, as they say, because that would have been wa ruhim minhu, right? Ruh is not matuf on Maryam. Wa ruhun, ruh is also a fire. Alright? So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala cast the kalima to, uh, towards Sayyidina Maryam Radhana and Ruhum Minhu and the Ruh from Allah also cast this kalima into Maryam. So Ruh here is Sayyidina Jibreel Kalima is Allah Ta'ala's command, Kun Fayakun. How was Sayyidina Isa conceived? So he wasn't conceived through the normal process, that's a particular sabab, right? Which is a worldly physical fertilization, right? How is he conceived then? Allah Ta'ala conceived him through the kalima, the word of his command. So it means that Sayyidina Isa was born from the word or command of Allah Subhanahu Wa Ta'ala. And that command in one sense was sent directly by Allah Subhanahu Wa Ta'ala to Sayyidatina Maryam Badatana and another sense wa ruhum minhu and Allah Ta'ala sent an angel from himself and that angel Sayyidina Jibreel alayhi salam and Sayyidina Jibreel alayhi salam also infused right and so infused that kalima another meaning that people take from ruhim minhu is that this notion of infusing the life force into Sayyidina Isa alayhi salam because normally the life force of a human being is born from the life force of a man and the life force of a woman when they come together. So here, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala then infused from his own life force into the life force of, um, brought into creation the life force of Sayyidina Isa alayhi salam by infusing it from a life force from him. Another meaning it can simply be taken, the commentators have also said, is that like every one of us, our ruh was made by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So, although the preferred tafsir is, is that ru means Sayyidina Jibreel Islam. But those who take ru to mean the word ru, which means spirit and soul, right? So that every single human being is murakkab of ru and jism, is made up of a body and a soul. And every soul has been created by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And it's Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala who sends down that soul and infuses that soul into the embryo or the fetus. So in that sense, there is nothing different. So in that sense, it would be saying that there is nothing different. In that sense, the conception of Sayyidina Isa Alright? فَآمِنُوا بِاللَّهِ وَرَسُولِهِ And you should believe in Allah subhanahu and all of Allah subhanahu messengers and prophets. And you should not say thalatha. So this is the direct Qur'anic refutation of the doctrine of Trinity. 
This also establishes what some people, misconceptions some Muslim historians have. They say that the doctrine of Trinity developed later. The Christians at the time of the Prophet didn't believe in Trinity. Trinity came later. If Trinity came later, then why is Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in Quran telling them, telling the Ahl Kitab and the Christians particularly, وَلَا تَقُولُوا ثَلَاثَةٌ And don't say that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is three. So this is a Quranic proof that the doctrine of Trinity, this adulteration of belief in Christianity, took place before Quran. How before Quran? That could be discussed by historians. But the fact that it is before to the Quran, that is established with absolute certainty by Quran. Intahu خَيْرٌ لَكُمْ if you could refrain from refrain from this, abstain from these theological deviations and heresies, it would be better for you, O Ahl Kitab, in the Malahu Ilahu Wahid. Know that Allah Spanta is one God. Tawheed. There's no notion of three or trinity. Subhanahu. Allah Ta'ala is far above and beyond in his perfection and his glory and his flawlessness. So declaring Allah Ta'ala that flawless and perfect and absolute is He, an yakuna lahu walad, far perfect is He to ever even have the, for you to even, ever hypothetically even imagine that you could postulate birth or a child and attribute child to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Lahu ma'afis samawati wa ma'afil ard. To Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala belongs everything that lies above and what is on the earth. What does it mean? Allah Ta'ala has no need for something called a child. Everything belongs to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. If everything belonged to you, you wouldn't need children either. They all belong to you. Everything belongs to you. Right? This is the meaning, this is the feeling that this same sentence is coming here. وَكَفَى بِاللَّهِ وَكِيلًا And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is sufficient on His own to be a guardian and caretaker of everything in the samawat and the ard. Allah ta'ala does not need help in His caretaking that he would have a son, most people have sons to help them, right? As a source of assistance and help. Allah is saying he's Allah is sufficient as wakil for all over the samawat and the earth. And it could also be understood spiritually that Allah subhanahu wa is sufficient to spiritually manage and to be spiritually the object of worship of everything that is in the samawat and earth. He doesn't not not going to create some type of trinity inside of himself or some trifold partition inside of himself or take a son that also should be worshipped and viewed as God. Allah Ta'ala is far, far beyond that. Alright. Anything else we want to see here? Okay, here that we already did for you Surah Al Imran, verse 47, that when Allah Ta'ala, when saying that the Maimon expressed her surprise at how am I going to bear a child, Allah, that angel Jabil told her that this is how Allah Ta'ala operates, he's going to say, Karima kun. And then, for yakun, then what happens will come, right? So this is also a reason why the tafsir says that kalima here refers to that single command kun, because that is how Jibreel Islam himself explained how Sayyidina uh, Islam will be created. Imam al-Ghazai, ta'ala, on this issue of kalima. So Imam Ghazali is actually not a formal mufassir in that sense. He's not written tafsir of Qur'an. But he has commented on many, many things in many of his works. So Imam Ghazali says that every single human being is born of two things. Number one is the kun for yakun. In other words, every human being is a ruh. 
And every human being's ruh is born of that kun fayakun. And every human being is also born through, in, let's say, let's put it this way, every human being is made up of two things, a ruh and a jism. Each of those has an initiating process. The initiating process for the ruh for every human being is kun fayakun, is a kalima that proceeds from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And the initiating process for almost every human being, every human being minus two, well, every human being minus three, minus Sayyidina Isa Islam, Sayyidina Adam Islam, and Sayyidatana Hawar Radha was another initiating process. So Imam Ghazayatai felt that when Allah SWT was calling Sayyidina Isa Islam Kalima here, it was to highlight that this initiating process of the body didn't take place. And the only initiating process that went into his creation was the Kalima. And so this was also an ishara to further um, absolve Sayyidatana Marim Radha from any type of allegation or doubt or skeptical of right, like a rational empiricist would insist that there's no she must have done something right so by calling Sayyidina Isa some kalima Allah Ta'ala was to fur, trying to further establish uh, further establish the innocence uh, of Sayyidina Maryam from any and all even possibility or hypothetical possibility of sin because when Sayyidina Isa is born and initiated only and only from kalima then there is no other uh, issue that comes over here. Okay, so we were doing what we're doing that don't go to uh, extremes and don't exceed the proper boundaries and the theological teachings of your deen. Alright. And that we already did for you. Okay. Okay. Yastankafa means that Sayyidina Isla Islam himself never ever hid this fact, never shied away from this fact, never concealed this fact, was never embarrassed about this fact, didn't view it at all as something degrading his shan that he was an Abd of Allah. He actually, the highest rank is to be Abd of Allah. So by making something Ibnullah, by, by postulating a human being as the son of Allah, you haven't raised them in rank, because the highest rank is being Abdullah, and Sayyidina Isa also felt that he was Faiz on this rank as being Abdullah. And even the close angels to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, right? And some people say that this is the angels whose names have been mentioned, such as Jibreel, Mikhail, Oh, Israfil, Israel, etc. Even the Malaika Mukarrabun, even they never ever felt any hesitancy or felt that they were being slighted in some way as being known and being and viewing themselves as Abdullah. And all of you would know that even Sayyidina Rasulullah also always referred to himself as Abdullah. Ashtawanna Muhammadan Abduhu wa Rasulu. Alright. وَمَنْ يَسْتَنْكِفْ an ibadatihi. And who is there who could in any way feel slighted or ashamed or lowered and lessened by being from the ibadah, uh, by being from amongst the ibad of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, from being amongst the servants and slaves. So now, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is saying is that whomsoever is ashamed of being amongst his ibad. Rather, you can read it that way, that whomsoever is ashamed of being amongst the ibad, and what is it they view themselves to be big? They view themselves to be high and mighty. إِلَيْهِ جَمِيعًا That Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is going to gather each and every one of such people to him. Right? 
Now, what does it mean? Yastakbir means that any person who would feel that they don't need to worship, but rather they should be worshipped. Allah is not saying, Sayyidina Ali Salaam felt this. But Allah is trying to address you're suggesting that that's what Sayyidina Salaam told you, that he doesn't need to worship Allah, but instead that you need to worship him. And that's not a good thing. Right? That is not a good thing. Again, for those who believe and do righteous acts and worship and good deeds, Allah subhanahu will grant them their full compensation and reward. And Allah subhanahu will bestow upon them even more than they've earned. This is the first time this has come. Allah will give them even more based on their fazl, based on His fazl, on His generous bounty and grace. As far as those who are ashamed or who do takabbur, what we can say are hesitant to do ibadah, ashamed of doing ibadah, feel awkward at doing ibadah, and have to kabur, فَيُعَذِّبَهُمْ أَذَابًا أَذِيمًا Then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will send His punishment on them, an extremely painful punishment. وَلَا يَجِدُونَ لَهُمْ مِن دُونِ اللَّهِ وَلِيَّ وَلَا نَصِيرًا And you will not find for any one of them, other than Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, any benevolent friend or any helper. يَا يُهَا النَّاسِ قَدْ جَاءَكُمْ بُرْحَانٌ مِّنْ رَبِّكُمْ That all humanity indeed has come to you a clear, a strong proof from your Rabb. وَأَنزَلْنَا إِلَيْكُمْ نُورًا مُبِينًا And we have sent down upon you a clear light. Commentators have discussed in detail what is the burhan and what is the nur. The sum of their entire discussion is the burhan can be equally both the Prophet ﷺ and the Qur'an itself. And nur can also be equally both the Prophet ﷺ and the Qur'an itself. Either one could be mentioned in either cases or both one is being mentioned as both. So let's first take the Qur'an. Qur'an is a burhan from your Rabb because it contains a clear proof in terms of its ijaz, in terms of its inimitability, in terms of its miraculous nature, in terms of its verses that speak to the heart and mold and melt the heart. And it is also haq and musaddiq and all of that. And the Qur'an is a nur that can also be understood because it is a, it is it's something that brings you out from darkness into light. It is something that casts light on matters that were disputed amongst people who came before. And it is that which casts light on the way to path, follow the path of Surat al-Mustaqeen. Sayyidina Rasulullah sallallahu is also burhan because he himself is a proof of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. His adab, his akhlaq, his sifat, his character was also a burhan from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala was a clear manifest proof, right? The fact that the Prophet was who he was is the fact that there is a creator. You understand? This is our real answer to evolution. Natural selection cannot produce Sayyidina Rasulullah Wasallam. <laughs> evolution doesn't result in such perfection. Only the perfect creator could create a being like Sayyidina Rasulullah Wasallam. And secondly, Nur, the Prophet is a Nur in that sense. He is not Nur in the sense that, remember, angels are made up of Nur, jinn are made up of fire, and human beings are made up of earth. What does that mean? Again, we've told you, human beings are made up of the elements that are found in the earth. So you are some percent water, water is underground, that's why you have wells and you bore them. You have iron, calcium, that's what your blood and your flesh is all made up of elements that are in the earth, boric acid, uric acid, calcium, magnesium, copper, zinc, it's all inside of you, right? Angels are newer, doesn't mean that angels are flying lanterns and flying light bulbs, it means that they just like you are made up of the elements of earth, they're made up of the elements of light, Allahu what that what that means, right? And the jinnat are made up of the elements of fire, it doesn't mean that they're walking fire creatures like those comic book firestorm, Right? It's not like that. Right? 
So, the Prophet is not being mentioned as Nur in terms of his inherent composition. Because in that sense, he is a human, right? But Nur is being mentioned here the same way the Qur'an is Nur. And what does that mean? That means a source of hidayah, a source of extraction from darkness, a source of spiritual illumination. And Sayyidina Al-Sulam is 100% Nur in that sense. And those who believe in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and hold fast to Him, Allah ta'ala says, surely, soonly, we will enter them and admit them into rahmatam minhu. They will be entered into, sorry, they will be entered into a mercy from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, wa fadlin, and a bounty and grace from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. That is referring to what Allah ta'ala will do for them in the akhirah. And in this world, wa yahdihim ilayhi, and they will be guided to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, siratam mustaqimah, and, and sorry, and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will guide them towards Him on what path? On the straight path on the Salat al-Mustaqeem. Yastaftunaka. So they ask you, Sayyidina Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, Say that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will Himself give you fatwa about kalala. Okay. Now kalala is something that I discussed with you before. This was a particular area of inheritance. We did it before, but what happened was is that the Prophet was severely asked about this. So this is coming at the end, almost like an afterthought or just a wrap-up in Surah An-Nisa. And that is Kalala again was that person who passed away, who doesn't leave behind any descendants and any predecessors, nor not even a paternal grandson. So the question was that, who gets the inheritance of the Kalala? So when Allah Ta'ala mentions this, yastaftunaka, it's simply mutlaq, they asked you concerning a ruling. But the ruling was about kalala. kalala. Say to them, my brother, that Allah Ta'ala is going to give you the ruling regarding to kalala. What is that? Okay, so we just translate this for you because I did this for you. That if man passes away without any children but has a sister, then that sister will inherit half of what he leaves. He will inherit, and if a woman passes away without any children, then he will inherit, and the brothers will inherit all of her wealth if she has no children. If there are two sisters, and they will inherit two-thirds of what the brother leaves. If there are brothers and sisters both, then the male will inherit the like share of two females. Allah Ta'ala expounds this upon you so that you do not go astray. Allah Ta'ala is the knower of all things. Okay, you may have remembered earlier there was a particular type of brother and sister that we did who received the same share in inheritance. Right? Here we're getting the, that... وَلِذَكْرِ مِثْلُ حَذِلْ أُنْثَيَيْنِ That to the male will be two shares with a share of two females. This is the complicated issue in inheritance law and this has to do with different types of siblings. There's one that you can call a full brother and sister. There's one, what in English, I think, they, what do they call it? In English they call it a consanguine brother and sister. This is what you call Urdu Bab Shariq by man. That they share the same father but have a different mother. And then there's what is called a uterine brother and sister. Those are the ones who have the same mother but have different fathers. Alright? So as far as uterine brothers and sisters go, they receive the same amount. Alright. And here what is being mentioned is the share of the real, the full and the consanguine brothers and sisters that in that case the male gets twice as much as the female. Alright? This is a long detailed issue. In Islamic law, in fact, I know that one person wrote their entire PhD on this. So I'm not going to be able to <laughs> discuss that with you in this type of course. Alright? Khair? So Allah Ta'ala says He makes this clear. 
يُبَيِّنُ اللَّهُ لَكُمْ أَن تَذِلُّوا وَاللَّهُ بِكُلِّ شَيْءٍ عَلِيمٌ That Allah Ta'ala has expounded this to you so that you do not go astray. And indeed Allah Ta'ala is all-knowing about each and everything. Alright. Surah Al-Nasaz ended. Surah Maida. Surah Maida has been mentioned by the commentators as a surah that has been revealed towards the latter days of Sayyidina Sallallahu life. And this word Maida is going to come. And here you're going to have more information about Sayyidina Isa salam and more information about Christianity. All right. However, the verse, the surah is going to begin and this is about, about how much we're going to be, do, be able to do today, which has to do with fulfilling contracts and fulfilling pledges and certain laws pertaining to slaughter and eating. All right. And this is also going to discuss the issue of marrying the ethnic kitab and also eating from their meat. Okay. Alright. Bismillah Ya ayyuhalladhina amanu. O fubil ukud. That O you who believe, you must fulfill your covenants, your pledges, and your contracts. O hillat lukum bahimatul an'am. Now here comes a separate thing. And Allah Ta'ala has made permissible to you land creatures. And sometimes people say this reserves to four-legged creatures. Obviously, right, this excludes pork to illama yutna alaykum except that which has been revealed to you as uh, except that which has been literally recited to you revealed to you so that includes except pork and those things that have not been the object of your hunt i.e. those were the corpses that died without being hunted by you and those things also sorry that you hunted when you were in a state of ihram alright That those things that have been made permissible to you from the four-legged creatures that walk the face of this earth, other than that which was recited upon you, such as the pork, however, these things that are otherwise permissible to you, they will not be permissible to you to hunt when you are in a state of ihram. Okay? So it could work either way. If you know it's not permissible to hunt in ihram, those are the very things that were permissible to you otherwise. Right? Or if you know the things that are permissible to you in normal situations, those are the very things that are not permissible for you to hunt when you're in a state of ihram. Inna Allaha yahkumu ma yurid, and indeed Allah SWT decides whatever He so wishes. Okay. So first thing you had here was a command to fulfill pledges. Pledges here means several things. Number one, akud. Akud, the word akud is used of contracts and pledges. So number one is akdun nikah. So the first way you can understand this ayah is awfu bil ukud that you should be true to the akad of nikah that you did. You should be true to the husband-wife bond that you made. You should fulfill all of the rights and obligations that a husband and a wife each have over one another when you engage in that contract of marriage. Second thing you can take by ukud means some akad of tijara or bayah, some contract, some contract of sale some contract of business, some contract of trade, some contract of partnership, mutual partnership for some company. You should fulfill all of the terms and dictates of all of those financial type of contracts. Third meaning of ukud then is what we had said of oaths and vows, right? That whenever you make an oath or a vow, you should be true to your promises. Fourth meaning means treaties and covenants. If you ever engage in an akud or a, this is also a transactional relationship, 
of it you engage in a treaty or a covenant, you must be absolutely true to that. All right. What is the rabbit here that all of a sudden it's one line, and we're going to come back to it later, but immediately after that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala refers to this issue of what is permissible to eat or not. So here Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is giving another ishara that another akad that you have made, another contract that you have made is by accepting iman, you entered into the abd rab contract. You've entered into this relationship that you were the complete slaves of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and now Allah ta'ala can choose to do mastery over you however He wants. Inna Allah yahkumu ma yurid. Allah ta'ala can now decide whatever He wants for you as your master and you will have to follow that as His slave. So whatever Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has said is even in terms of your fundamental basic need of eating, whatever Allah ta'ala has said is permissible for you to eat, that you can eat. And whatever Allah ta'ala has said is not permissible you cannot eat and that is part of your akud that is part of your relationship or contract of being this master and slave relationship and furthermore whatever he has said that was otherwise permissible for you to hunt if he says you can't hunt it in ihram you will not hunt it in ihram because he is your rab inna allaha yahkumu ma yurid that Allah subhanahu decides for you whatever he wants this is also a very important portion of a verse to remember so remind of verse 1 so you human beings want to think that Allah Ta'ala should have decided what's best for us. That's in terms of Akhirah. He has decided what's best for us, a life on earth that will lead us to Akhirah. Right? He has also decided what's best for us. He has given us a system of collective living when it comes to this earth. But as far as individual actions, as far as individual actions, Allah Ta'ala has decided for us not what's best for us as individuals. He decided for us as individuals whatever He wants. As a collective, Allah Ta'ala decided what's best for us. Whether that collective is two people, husband and wife, whether it's family, whether it's community, whether it's society, whether it's ummah, whether it's humanity, Allah Ta'ala has laid down rules that are best for us. In terms of the next life, Allah Ta'ala has decided, laid down a deen which contains what's best for us. As far as our individual decisions go, my one-to-one relationship, that's my one-to-one contract with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, my own individual actions, what can I do, what can I eat, what can I not eat, in that case Allah ta'ala is saying that don't try to think that I'm going to decide what's best for you, and that I decide whatever I want. Whatever I want. So if you come up with some discovery that eating something which Allah ta'ala hasn't made permissible is somehow best for you, but that's not what He wanted for you. If you think, no, it's best for me to eat McDonald's in New York because that's best for me. No, it doesn't matter. You have to do what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has decided for you. This is a mentality, right? This is a sentence. I am a person who does. What does it mean? I believe in Allah. What does it mean that I'm a believer? I am the name of that human being who does what Allah ta'ala decides for him to do. Not Not the name of that human being who does what he wants to do. Not the name of the human being who does what's best for him to do. I'm the name of that human being that she does whatever Allah Ta'ala decides for her to do. That's the feeling Allah Ta'ala is giving us. Right there, up front, in the first ayah. Right? So, Ukud does mean, and the rest of the tafsil is going to be, many, many things in coming the surah are going to be about the pledges and covenants and all of that. Right? But the actual akad, the real, the most ultimate contract and ultimate relationship and ultimate covenant and ultimate pledge we've made is our pledge of iman. Right? Is our pledge of ubudiyat, our pledge of servitude and slavehood and loving, worshipful servitude and slavehood to that all-compassionate being, but he also has the power that he can decide whatever he wants.
or you who believe. La tuhillu sha'airillah. Okay. Sha'airillah, we did this before. This means the signs of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, the emblems of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Let me in fact maybe just mention this issue because this is a bit of a long shot in the here. But what exactly happened? Alright. So Sayyidina Abdullah ibn Abbas narrates that Shuray ibn Zahbiya Kindi, he came to Medina Manawra and he told his companion, he came with a group to check out the Prophet wasallam. put it that way. And he told his group that you guys wait outside Medina, I'll go in alone and I'll go meet this person who is claiming that he is the Prophet. So when he went to the Prophet and he asked him that okay, we've heard, we heard in our community that you are somebody who claims to be a Prophet, so what is your prophecy? What is it that you're claiming to teach? So Sayyidina Rasulullah taught him Tawheed, Kalima, Salah, Zakat, taught him the basic things. Okay. He responded by saying that, okay, what you're preaching sounds good to me, but I have to go back and consult the other leaders of the community that I came from, who I brought with me, and I left them. And then he said that, in, you know, that I will, you know, I will accept Islam soon and I'm going to bring some of them with me as well. Okay, so then he left. Before he had come now, before this incident, this incident that took place, before this took, Sayyidina Rasulullah Wasallam told them, that told the Sahaba who were sitting with him, that just now there's going to be a person who's going to come. And he's going to come and he's going to present himself to me and he's going to talk to me, but actually he will be speaking with the tongue of shaitan. And then this person came and had this conversation. So the way the Prophet said that he will enter with the appearance or face of an unbeliever and he will leave with the feet of a deceiver. So here, as this person left Medina Manawra, what did he do? That there were some camels of the Sahaba. These Sahaba who were sitting with the Prophet and some other Sahaba had left some of their camels grazing. So on his way out from Medina Manawra, he stole all those camels, like binding them up one by one and you know, you can see this if you walk in Manhattan. Sometimes there's one guy whose job is to walk the dogs at 10 a.m. Ajib Mantra. He's got one hand and he's got like 50 ropes and like 50, 60 dogs. Right? So like that, this person must have taken the reins of so many camels and led them all out to what turns out now to be a party of thieves. Right? Who's waiting outside Medina Manora. Now when the Sahaba come realized this, at some point they started realizing, they tried to chase him and catch up with him, but they couldn't catch up with him. They couldn't catch up with him. Alright. Now, this person was from a place called Yamama. Alright. Now later on, when Sayyidina Rasulullah went for an Umrah once, this is another long story about what that Umrah was. So he heard Let's put it this way, that they passed by the, this group of Yamama and they saw with them the camels that they had stolen at that earlier time because the Arabs could recognize, you know, me and you would never know, but the Arabs could recognize their camels, right? You know, like the way you can recognize your Corolla even though there may be 20 of them out there, right? They could recognize their camels. So, when they saw that with these people, the camels that, uh, that were originally the Sahabas had been stolen, were with them, so Sabakram asked the Prophet some permission to attack, but to regain the camels by force, right? To regain by force what was stolen from them. Sayyidina Rasulullah refused them. Why? Because these people had actually now taken these camels that they had stolen and had put on them flowers and garlands and plants that they were going to take these camels and sacrifice them at the Kaaba in their own, right? I mean, they're not Muslims, according to their own 
pre-Islamic Jahiliya rites, but they were going to take them to the Kaaba and offer them as an animal sacrifice. So Sayyidina Rasulullah said, uh, so the Sabiqram responded, the Yarasulullah but they're not taking the animals to sacrifice them like how we do when we go for Hajj, inshallah, right? They're taking them and sacrificing them as the practice of Jahiliya. So Sayyidina Rasulullah said that even then we won't, because what? These are Sha'a'ir Allah, these are sacred symbols, these are signs of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So Sayyidina Abbas said that the signs of Allah then in this verse refers to those rites of Hajj, such as even animal sacrifice, even if they were observed by mushrikeen, but this notion of sacrificing an animal, right, even if they were not performing the proper worship of Hajj, right, they were doing their own twisted form of pilgrimage, but because this act of sacrificing an animal was the same thing as the act in Deen, so even that Mushabiha or Mumathlat, even that resemblance and likeness made this viewed as a sign of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and Sayyidina Rasulullah said that we won't do it. In other words, then all these camels that have been stolen from you, they will go ahead and let them go ahead and sacrifice them. Alright? So this is uh, what Sayyidina Abdullah bin Abbas views as the occasion of revelation or Shatan Nazul of this particular few words of this ayah. That la tuhillu Allah, that you should not literally use halal, you should not sacrifice uh, the signs of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. shahr al-haram, and you should not violate in any way the inviolable sacred months. Walal hadiyah, and hadiyah again here means the sacrificial animal, right? Uh, so the rub here to this part of hadiyah uh, is the sacrificial animal that is being referred to here. Mm. Walal qalaid refers to, it's a plural, of those garlands or rings of petals or necklaces that they had put on their animals. Alright? So here it's referring not to the necklaces, but animals who have been bedecked and adorned and garlanded with those necklaces. Alright? Wala amin al-bayta, haram. And nor those people who have taken sanctuary in the house of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Alright? What does it mean that you, la tuhillu, none of these things are halal on you, it depends. This is not halal for you to eat, this is not halal for you to sacrifice, those amin are not halal for you to fight if they were an aggressors and they were fighting against you. Alright. Yabtahuna fadlam min rabbihim wa and they are seeking the fazl of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, and they are seeking the pleasure of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. halaltum, however, when you break your ihram, when you exit from your ihram, Fastadu, then you can hunt all of these animals, right, in the name of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And why would you be doing that? You will hunt those animals for the sake of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. وَاللَّهَ Okay, so we'll just end here with the translation of this and then we'll explain this to you a bit more tomorrow. Here Allah subhanahu is saying is do not let the enmity or adversity or hostility that lies between you and a qawm and any community, let not that be a means for you to stop them from masjid al-haram. And what you should do as people is you should mutually help one another on bir and you should mutually help one another on taqwa. This is also a famous 
oft recited pull quote from Quran, وَتَعَوَنُوا عَلَى الْبِرِّ وَالتَّقْوَى And sometimes different ulama in the past also, when they would write letters to one another, and if they had had slightly different scholastic positions or opinions or interpretations, but they were trying to work together for some other greater cause or greater mission, so they would write this part of Qur'an al-Kareem to one another, وَتَعَوَنُوا عَلَى الْبِرِّ وَالتَّقْوَى That Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has commanded us that we should... Uh, that we should help one another mutually in taqwa. Alright? Bir, I've done for you before. I, I think I translated bir is righteousness and taqwa is piety. Okay, so don't let any hostility or enmity or adversity from any community ever stop you from going to Masjid al-Haram or never let it make you transgress but instead what you should do is mutually help one another on righteousness and piety. وَلَا تَعَوَنُوا And you should not help one another عَلَى الْإِثْمِ وَالْأُدْوَانِ On sin and on enmity and hostility. وَاتَّقُوا اللَّهِ You should fear Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala إِنَّ اللَّهَ شَدِيدُ الْإِكَابِ Indeed Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is the most severe in His punishment. All right. سبحان الرحمن الرحيم اللهم صل على سيدنا محمد وعلى آل سيدنا محمد ومبارك وسلم يا رب كريم يا الله we ask that you increase us in our taqwa we ask that you increase us in the strength of our iman ya Allah we ask that you save us from all of the alamat of the munafiqeen ya Allah take out the laziness from our salah take out the laziness from our tilawa take out the laziness even from our tawaf when we go to baytullah take out the laziness from all of our acts of ibadah ya Allah let us become people who are passionate about you passionate about our deen passionate about our ibadah ya Allah ya and we ask that you make us amongst the zakirin Allah kathino wa zakirat. Make us amongst the male and female believers who remember you abundantly, who remember you exclusively inside their ibadah, and who remember you abundantly and always even when they're not engaged in ibadah. And Ya Allah, we ask that you make us true to all of our commitments, true to our word, true to all of our pledges and oaths and promises, true to all of our covenants and contracts. And Ya Allah, most of all, we ask that you enable us to learn how to become true to you, true to the dictates and contract of being abd to you. Ya Rabbi Kareem, we want to be your true ibad, your loyal ibad, your sincere ibad, your devoted ibad, your upright ibad, your firm ibad. Ya Allah, we ask that you make us amongst your ibad as salihin. Ya Allah, Ya Rabbi Kareem, Ya Allah, just in a few hours, the month of Ramadan will be upon us. Ya Allah, perhaps we will be caught entirely unprepared but Ya Allah, even the mercies that you will release and descend upon us Ya Allah, we ask that you enable us to feel the full force of Ramadan the second it starts, Ya Rabbi Kareem we ask that you make this month of Ramadan a month of change for us a month of progress for us a month of dynamism for us Ya Allah, we want to pledge ourselves to you we want to pledge our lives to you we want to pledge our hearts to you Ya Allah, we ask that you change us in this month of Ramadan we ask that you transform us in this month of Ramadan 
Ramadan. We ask that you uplift us in this month of Ramadan. Ya Allah, whatever little we have been able to read and study in these past few days, Ya Allah, accept it as a means to make us prepared for Ramadan. And Ya Rabbi Kareem, we ask that you overwhelm us this year in Ramadan. Make it a Ramadan of the Ruh. Make it a Ramadan of Taqwa. Make it a Ramadan of Ma'rifa. Make it a Ramadan of Wilaya. Make it a Ramadan of Ibadah. Make it a Ramadan of Dua. And for each and every one of us, make it a Ramadan in which we earn your, in which we are bestowed your maghfira, in which we are bestowed your rahmah. Ya Allah Rabbi Kareem, we are about to enter this month as a group of sinners. But Ya Allah, we hope that we exit this month and we pass through this month as your ibad salihin, as your qanitin. Ya Allah, help us to increase in our salah, increase in our tilawa, increase in our taqwa, increase in our haya, increase in our sidq, increase in our ikhlas, increase in our sabr, increase in our shukr. Ya Rabbi Kareem, we ask that you put barakah in each and everything that we do. And we ask you to put barakah in our learning and understanding Qur'an al-Kareem. Rabbana taqabbal minna innaka anta samiyul alim. Wa tubu alayna innaka anta tawabu rahim. Wa sallallahu ta'ala ala habibihi Sayyidina Muhammad. Wa ala alihi wa ashabihi ajma'in. Bi rahmataka ya arhamar rahimin. Amen.